0: Okay members, um, uh, welcome to this week's uh, Committee for Communities. In the room with me today I have Andy Allen. Um, On Starleaf we have the Vice Chair Kelly Armstrong, we have Karen Mullen, Fran McCann and Sinead Innes. These are all very welcome to the meeting today. I'll move on to agenda item one which is apologies. I have an apology from Alex Easton. Any other apologies? No, none at this stage. I'll move on then to agenda item two, which is chairperson's business. Members, you'll recall, recall that we agreed to seek information on what work the Committee for Health and Education or help the Committees for Health and Education had done recently regarding physical activity in schools and links to health outcomes. Um, members, you've been provided a page five with two papers from RAIS. One on physical activity and the well-being of children and young people and another summarising some of the evidence on the links between physical activity in schools and health and the economy in the longer term. Um, These papers were prepared by RAISE towards the end of 2020 for the Education Committee and now they have been shared with us. Um, Members are you content to note these papers for now? Um, Requests have been sent to the Education Committee for more information on the subject is that okay for now yes yes okay that's grand um i'll move on then to agenda item three which is draft minutes you'll find draft minutes um for the 3rd of june 2021 at page 39 of your meeting pack can i ask members are you content with the minutes as drafted yeah that's yes good stuff thank you we'll move on then to agenda item four which is matters arising Members, you've been provided at page 47 with a departmental response in relation to neighbourhood renewal. At our meeting on the 13th of May, we agreed to write to the department on this matter and requested information on progress around the gap in regeneration funding for towns with a population between uh, 2,500 and 5,000. The response advises that this falls outside the remit of neighbourhood renewal within the responsibility of officials in Housing, Urban Regeneration and Local Government. Um, However, the Department is currently in discussions with DERA and DFI on developing a more collaborative approach to the regeneration for smaller settlements. Um, No commitments can be made until this work is complete and no decisions have been taken in relation to funding any applications submitted to the Department. We also asked for a written briefing on neighbourhood renewal outcomes, and this is provided at Annex A. The of officials will attend the committee meeting on the 17th of June, so that's next week, to discuss this further. So, can I ask uh, members content to note that at present, or have they any comments? Content to note. Yeah.
1: Sure.
0: Go ahead, Fra. Sure. Go ahead, Fra.
1: Um, but, uh, say, obviously. Uh, where people who live in settlements over 5,000 are lucky to uh, be able to tap into neighbourhood renewal, Uh, have seen the benefits over the years. And uh, I I always thought, and I remember this uh, difficulty coming up before that were settlements under 2,500 or 5,000, that that, that there there was difficulties. But I did always think that uh, DERA or or whatever uh, had an equivalent package there to deal with uh, social deprivation and, uh, and is, there, is there any way that, that we can find out if there are any equivalent uh, pieces of legislation that allows uh, social deprivation and uh, other aspects of, of need in, in, in those areas? I know that uh, when we think of neighbourhood renewal, we often, we, we, we often think of the department. Uh, for communities or in the past social development, but we'd be just interested to see if there are anything there is anything there that allows uh, communities in smaller uh, and catchment areas that tap into it.
0: Yeah, I do know, Frad, that um, DARA do give money to the department for communities to roll out various pro- programs and um, within those uh, uh, more rural areas. I do know that happens, and they have said said that they are in discussions at the minute, and they will come back to us whenever that work is completed. Um, so, but I mean, we can go and ask, you know, just what, oh, no, no. what money they do put into communities. Again, I know we did that. That was maybe why you were were weren't with us for that period, um, because there, there. I know for definite that there is money for that they give to the Department of Communities um, for some stuff. Kelly, you wanted to come in? Yeah. I was, yeah. Uh,
2: to be honest, this is just something that's happening, uh, just for clarification, that it falls between two stools. You're absolutely right, there is money provided for settlements under 2,500. The issue has arisen because previous Communities Minister, uh, Paul Given, had announced that those settlements that fall between two and a half thousand and five thousand and 5,000 could apply through communities for regeneration and applications have been sent in on that basis now the minister has said actually that's not the case my our regeneration is for five thousand and over so we now have a growth in what would have been previously under DARA rural settlements of under two and a half thousand whose population has grown beyond that amount and they're sitting in limbo with nothing i have it with port of ferry um, that had applied for a huge amount of regeneration work through the council, a lot of money spent on that application process and getting plans in place and Fortify is not the only place, there are others across the area so at the moment those settlements between two and a half thousand and five thousand are falling between two stools but they were led to believe that it was coming under communities, that isn't the case so they're not being funded. In any way shape or form at the moment for regeneration and uh, because they don't match DARA and they don't match communities so they're in between so I'm delighted to say that that we have foot coming to see us on the 17th uh, because they might be able to update us I do know that our Minister and DARA have been talking about this actually and are trying to get something um, resolved on this matter so I know there's plans in place but unfortunately there is a case now resettlement that do fall between two stools and it's important that we, we don't forget those growing rural areas and they are all larger rural towns, but um, unfortunately they're just not being met by anybody at the moment.
0: No, and we do have that briefing next week and I suppose if we can get any information at all for committee before that briefing of any of the money that d- does come from DERA to the Department of Communities for, um, for, for d- that is used in rural settings. Um, so if we can get that information before next week as well... Uh, and then that will help us as well with our our questioning of the department around neighborhood too. is
3: that okay sorry chair i just think this uh response is pretty poor (laughs) to, to, to be honest and that's me being polite about it it's just a very general and broad uh letter now i'm not looking for analysis of the of every project and all the data to go with that but there's absolutely nothing nothing uh in this response or, or in the, the annex and i think we we should at least be furnished with with a lot of that uh, statistical data in advance of the oral briefing uh, n- next week i think I don't know what questions you can ask based based on this it certainly doesn't answer any questions but there's not much you can ask around it either
0: no we can ask for that mark and before the briefing next week i'd like to think that they will send us a written briefing before that with some more information in but we can certainly ask for um those facts and figures as well any other comments?
3: Sorry, sorry, Chair. Sorry, Chair, Bear in mind, this is a written briefing that we have asked them for, and it's 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 quite promise. Okay. Clever.
0: Well, we can pass that back. Absolutely. Your your point is well made. Any other any other comments on this before we move on? I've just changed. I think you made the claim against. Okay. Can hear somebody talking in the background. Just remember, these are all live at the minute. Um, I'm going to move on then to the um, next item on this, uh, which is page 51, which is a Department of Mental Response in relation to civil service recruitment. Um, members, you remember we wrote to the Department after our meeting on the 13th of May, seeking an update on the recruitment of staff to deal with the increased volumes of people claiming universal credit. The response states that the recruitment of 900 additional staff is already underway and will continue on a phased basis throughout the year. To date, 367 new staff have been recruited into Universal Credit and a further 158 are currently going through the offer and pre-appointment stages. Recruitment and training will continue on an ongoing basis throughout 2021-2022 to fill vacancies in a range of grades. This will will include intake from the NICS-wide Executive Office competitions that launched in recent weeks with supply of these staff expected um, from late summer early autumn. Um, so members again any comments or content to note? Content to note. Okay thank you. Then can I ask you to turn to page 52 where you'll see a departmental response in relation to amendments to NI Social Security legislation due to introduction of child disability premium, or sorry, payment by the Scottish Government. Um, Following our meeting on the 13th of May we requested a comparison between the legislative changes for child disability payment in Scotland and current legislation here in Northern Ireland. The reply states that in relation to the devolved disability benefits, nothing has been introduced or is operational in Scotland at this point. To date the work undertaken by the Department in relation to Scotland has been to identify any potential issues for customers as a result of the changes being brought forward in Scotland with the aim to ensure a consistent, uh, as consistent an approach as possible and minimum disruption for any customers moving between here and Scotland and vice versa. Those legislative amendments are considered necessary and beneficial. Again, members, any comments or content to note? Content? Content. Okay, Members, uh, with your agreement, I propose that we now move into closed session to be briefed on the draft charities bill. Um, members agreed? Agreed. Great, thank you. We're going into closed session right members we're going to move on to agenda item six which is a departmental briefing on the june monitoring round members you'll find the papers for this in your tabled items can i then welcome to the meeting gavin patrick and cherry arnold um, then can i ask antonette if she move all the members down into the audience and then um is it gavin is it yourself then it's going to kick off for us Let's Just do this to confuse us. Um, very, very welcome. Go ahead. Good morning. Good morning, Chair and Committee.
4: Thank you for the opportunity for myself and my colleague Gavin to brief you today on the Department's 2021 20, 22 June Monitor Announce position. In-year Monitor rounds provide departments with a formal system to review spending plans and priorities. For the current financial year and provide departments with the opportunity to reg- register any pressures or easements against budget allocations. We have provided a written briefing which sets out the department's June monitoring round position. June monitoring was commissioned by Department of Finance on the 24th of May with a submission date of the 4th of June the outcome of which is subject to executive agreement. In terms of the monitoring round, the department has submitted bids totalling 58.5 million. This includes 3.6 million of resource dial, 26.6 million of capital dial, 8 million of fin- financial transactions capital, and 20.3 million of COVID bids. In terms of the department's capital bid, or sorry, resource bids of 3.6 million. This includes $1.5 million for a housing executive to progress housing transformation and a fundamental review of social housing allocations, $1.3 million for housing executive homeless programmes, $600,000 to match fund language body funding, and 175 k to progress a child funeral fund in line with new decade, new approach commitments. In terms of capital, the department has submitted 26.6 million of bids. This includes 18.3 million of over commitments previously notified against our opening budget and an additional 3.8 million of new bids. The new bids include 3 million for Housing Executive Renovation Grants, 2 million for Housing Executive Urban Renewal Works, 1.2 million for Housing Executive. Decent Homes Improvement Works, and 1.2 million for the pay service replacement IT, and an additional 1 million to support refurbishment of OMA Library. In terms of financial transactions capital, the department has submitted a bid of 8 million. This is to support an over 55 shared ownership pilot scheme proposed by the Northern Ireland Co-Ownership Housing Association. In terms of COVID, the department has submitted 68.6 million of bids in the Executive May COVID exercise and was reward, awarded 50.3 million of allocations for COVID, which will be formalized in June monitoring. Whilst the 50.3 million of additional COVID funding is welcomed, there remains 18.3 million of COVID bids not met. The bids not met include requirements for local councils, charities and social enterprise and sports, and these unmet beds will be resubmitted as part of joint monitoring. An additional bid of three million has also been submitted to help manage and clear a backlog of appeals due to the impact of the pandemic on appeals hearings last year. Furthermore, we have advised the Department of Finance of a further potential in-year bid to support culture, arts and heritage sectors given the impacts of COVID. Minister has established a cultural arts and heritage task force to advise on reopening, immediate financial support needs, and on the development of long-term sectoral strategy. The task force is undertaken for further work to refine the assessment of needs in these sectors. In terms of reduced requirements or surrenders, in the monitoring round, the Department has notified Department of Finance of a 6500000 million ring-fenced resource reduced requirement in relation to welfare reform staff costs. This reduced requirement is due to delays in recruitment to fill staff vacancies in welfare reform. NICS-wide recruitment competitions for the staff at key management grades EOT, ao 2 and E01 were launched in May and whilst the recruitment is welcomed by the department, there is presently no supply available at these grades. Supply from competitions is not expected until late summer, early autumn. Additionally, the department has notified an 18 million non-ring fenced capital reduced requirement in respect of casement. 20 million was earmarked for casement park project as part of the department's opening budget, this was based on an early forecast of expenditure. However, current estimates are that the full $20 million cannot be spent in the current financial year. The planning approval process for the project has not completed, and there's potential conditions contained within the Section 76 planning agreement, which impact on potential costs. In completing the monitor round, we have sought to ensure that the department is in a position to live within strict financial tolerances and that appropriate funding is in place to meet business needs this financial year at this early stage of the year our requirements are based on the best information available however due to the nature of our operating environment and significant uncertainties from COVID, and the resultant impacts on the wider economy the department's requirements are liable to change As such, the Department has used the opportunity of the Monitoring Round to reposition its budget as best it can. I hope you find our briefing today informative and Gavin and I are happy to take any questions.
0: Thank you, Cherry, for that. Um, I'm just going to start off with a question that's not strictly related to the Monitoring Round. and It's something that we'll be considering later in our correspondence, Um, so if you don't have the information that's fine. We've been recommended by the Finance Committee to query the rationale for any resource or capital end-of-year surges in spending. Um, Do you know, are there any within um, DFC that that you'd like to take the opportunity to highlight with us now? As I said, if you don't have that information, that's fair enough. It's just something that's in our correspondence later. So it's just the end-of-year surges in spending. Was there any that had been identified yet?
5: There, there were no surges that I can think of at the moment on spend that weren't part of our original plan. And Obviously, there's some plans to, to spend at the end of the year on capital, but like I say, they were part of our, our forecast.
0: Okay, that's fair enough. That's all right. Um, then I'll just move on then to the um, the regard to the 50.3 million COVID allocation, and you'd said there are about the 18.3 million uh, of bids not met, and you're hoping that that will be resubmitted during the June monitoring. Um, how, you know, how hopeful are we with that? Um, because certainly looking at the, you know, the 7 million for councils and the 5 million for charities and social enterprises, that will have a major impact on both of those um, uh, uh, parts of the of, uh, you know, with reduced funding, so just any, you know, how uh, high... hopeful are
5: you? Uh, well, obviously these will be considered against other priorities by the executive, I suppose with the likes of council and charities, we um, we we did we have received some funding uh, for those in part of the allocation in May, so councils received 10 million and, and charities in and social price received 5 and marks on going as to how that, that can be allocated uh, to the sector. So, uh, I suppose at this stage, uh, it, it's unknown how, how our bids will be prioritised by by the executive. Um, a significant amount of the funding was given out um, as part of the May exercise, so there isn't a large amount remaining.
0: And I suppose I mean it, it's it's positive that that will be resubmitted. So I mean it's good that that is yeah. that is going to happen. Um, I just um, just want to move on to the culture, arts, and heritage um, stuff. Um, and we know and that's very welcome as well, um, any money that goes towards that to, you know, kickstarting that cultural economy. Um, we know that they have, you know, suffered great, great losses um, during the, the whole COVID pandemic. Um, but just to ask you, if any indications as to what size of further bids um, that might be required in that regard?
5: Uh, We haven't at the moment. The task force has met um, and um, I I give them a short briefing just on on the budget position and and how uh, we go around to to bid for further funding, but I'm aware that they're continuing to meet to try and uh, quantify uh, any potential further needs within the sector. Yeah. On top of the thirteen million that's already been allocated.
0: Yeah, because I mean, we it is something that um, we've heard from them on many occasions, and just how much they are suffering. Though so hopefully we will get some good news out of the executive today um, um, for for further easements, which will help with with that as well. Um, just then, just I just want to finally ask around the disabled adaptations. I mean, this is something again that has been brought up in the committee, and we all know as committee, or sorry, as um, constituency MLAs the amount of queries and the amount of concern um, that we have around disabled uh, adaptations and the renovation grants. Um, Again, if these bids are not met, um, how are we going to square that circle? I'd
5: be more confident on the capital bids being met to aware that there is a, a an amount of money being held at the centre by um by DOF for allocation and June monitoring around about seventy million um that plus the, the easement that we have we've now given back in the ring fenced amount Casement, So um i will be confident of those those bids being met.
0: Okay, no well that's good. That that's get that will give some sort that will give some well, com- comfort. Um, I should
5: I should say I will say it is for exactly to make that
0: decision, <laughs> but you know I suppose that's my, my, my feeling. No, well that's good and, and if that is your feeling I would trust your feeling on that, you know. That remain that's hopeful. Um okay members if uh, members want to ask some questions, can you please put your hands up? I have Karen and then I have Kelly. So could we bring in Karen first please? <coughs>
6: Thank you Gavin and Terry for your uh, presentation this morning, and very much welcome. The bits going forward, in particular the ones around the housing transfer- transformation and homeless strategy work. Um, uh, but I wanted to ask around, and, and he's hadn't touched on it, was the, the bit that's on there for the employment practices for the voluntary and community sector. Uh, firstly, I want to declare an interest. Um, my husband works in the sector, uh, and I worked on it for many years. And as we know, for over 10 years, um, more than 10 years now, workers in, particularly in neighbourhood renewal and supporting people, have not only not had an uplift, but they have not had any increase in terms of cost of living. Um, I know the Minister is very aware and sympathetic to that. I'm working towards it, and hopefully this bill will be passed. But could you give us just a wee bit of detail on
5: what that uh, budget would entail? Okay, so uh, the, the bid is to support organisations funded through a range of voluntary and community sector uh, programmes administered by the department, um, and that would include neighbourhood renewal, uh, community investment fund, volunteering, um, at, who have uh, been at the forefront on, of, the, of the front line during COVID. Um, and I, as as you've noted, uh, budget limitations in re- recent years have inhibited any uh, salary uplifts uh, for for the posts that are supported by those. And um, so the, the the bid for funding is um, is really to look at upli- uh, providing an uplift to those organisations for for their staff. And um, uh, going forward, it would obviously be a an ongoing cost as well, which um, would need to be taken account of. And, and we have bid for this as part of a, the COVID bids um, because of the frontline support that these organisations have done in, in, in the past year or so.
6: Thank you, Gavin. I, I understand the, the difficulties, particularly this year. The Minister had hoped um that it wouldn't be a one-year flatline budget um so understand in relation to taking those factors in and i hope as i say that the bud is passed and that this is the start of addressing the paying conditions for workers in that sector so thank you Gavin, for that
0: thank you chair thanks karen um can we bring in the kelly and then we have robin so kelly
6: thank
2: you very much chair and thank you very much chair and gavin um i have a couple of questions um some of them may not be for yourselves to answer but we can maybe ask questions um through the dialogue to get details like for instance the first one i have on the resource bids um the ndna child funeral fund um i would very much appreciate the detail of how that is applied and who it applies to and so perhaps we I, i know that you have the figures in there and they're very welcome but it's just it's more the detail of how that spend will be able to be accessed and, and very sadly, um, the children that it can be accessed for, so um, if we could get that. Um, On the homelessness, oh, I hope we get this money through. I'm very aware that um, a number of the homelessness charities that are funded um, directly, or to be honest, through the Housing Executive, received money for their first quarter, um, but haven't received any letters of offer so far. Are we convinced... April, May, June, so we're coming to the end of the first quarter now, uh, when will the decisions be coming forward um, to let the housing executive or whoever's paying out this money to those the homelessness sector know that they can release letters of offer and just very aware that we've already seen some redundancies happening within the sector and any delays takes away that confidence from that area um, so it's just when you think that this decision will be taken I know it might be how long is a piece of string um, the language body and the match funding that's coming through from that again this is one about the detail of what that money is going to be used for um, given that there's a debate coming up in the in the chamber very shortly it would be useful to know what that money is planned to do so again that's detail of, of, of the plans like the chair, sabled adaptations and um, the, sorry on the the capital bids, um, it's the disabled adaptations and the disab- the renovation grants. Um, I do have concerns and I sincerely hope that um, that money is allocated because if it's not, then we have an issue, an equality issue, of, of how people can live in their home, whether it's a private or a, or a social housing or housing executive house, um, if those adaptations are not permitted. Um, I just wanted to check as well, the niaps system replacement Um, the money that's being applied for is capital not resource so it's just clarification on what those system replacement is is this just um computer systems or is it anything to do with um the appeals system using alternative venues um because that would be revenue surely Uh, just for clarification on that one um and then The other thing I wanted to ask you about, and this is my last question, I know I'm I'm asking for information and asking you guys questions. I don't see in this, and there hasn't been anything in the budget, about a forward work plan money that that is for the department to consider uh, work being done on the end of EU monies or EU grants and the potential limitations of the Shared Prosperity Fund. Um, I'm just very concerned that we're still funding what we have always funded, um, and that's wonderful. And we know it's a one-year budget, and nobody wants that. We would love multi-year budgets, but that's not for you guys to fight that. It's for us and, and, and Minister to fight Treasury. But I'm just very worried. Is there capacity in this year for the Department to have the, the resource budget to think further and future in the future about what's going to happen whenever the EU grants end and the alternatives to Shared Prosperity Fund is coming forward, because that seems to be a more prescriptive fund as opposed to the way that we've been able to apply and adapt um, European grants. Um, I'm just wondering, there doesn't seem to be anything in the resource, Dale, for that.
4: That's me. Okay, sir. I suppose, chair. If I take the first question on um child funeral fund, um, the department submitted a bid for one hundred and seventy-five thousand. Um, obviously, it'll take a period of time to put a scheme in place. Um, that scheme would be intended for under 18s um, within Northern Ireland. Uh, at this current point in time, as an interim measure, local councils are we even. Some local councils are waiving um, certain fees in relation to the burial or cremation of a child under the age of 18, and that's to help ease the financial burden on parents. Um, we're happy to bring back further details in relation to that scheme, although it still, we will need to be developed within the department if our bid is successful. Um, I guess just to touch on the one two you mentioned about... Um, Further work in relation to um, EU, there's a um, work stream ongoing within the department in relation to um, EU funding, um, going forward, a uh, replacement EU funding going forward, um, and we will be submitting bids um, as we have the opportunity to do so within the department.
5: Okay. okay um, Chair, just on that child,
4: I, I can come back in on
2: that one, the reason why I'm asking it is a very sad um, reason. Um, at a time when a family has lost a child, it's horrendous enough for them. I would just love our specification to ensure that we're very clear when we talk about, um, of course, children under the age of 18, whether or not that does provide funding for someone who's had a, a miscarriage um, and is able, able to have a funeral or stillbirth. And I know that's, that's a very specific piece, and I apologise if, if that upsets anyone, but it would be really good to have that clarified in advance, so it helps councils and, and families to know the clarification on that but delighted to hear about the eu funding work stream we can maybe ask for an update on that um chair at some stage
0: yeah can. go
5: ahead so. uh, okay if i just uh, pick up on the other points then um on the homelessness I, I don't have the direct information as to when letters of offer would actually issue but uh, you know the, the bid that's been put forward is additional funding so um, we do already have funding within the department. For example, there was the uh, COVID funding that we received as well on top of the, the normal uh, allocations. Um, so um, we can, certain colleagues, we can come back on, on, on when letters of offer would, would actually issue. Uh, in relation to the language body, um, the, uh, our, our colleagues um, uh, have, who part from the language body, um had um increased the the funding and um, back um at the end of 2020 so the bit that we're putting forward then is is to, to provide that match funding. and um, again i don't have the exact details of how how that money is going to be spent across um uh, across a language body but the initial bit is to make sure that we are we're providing our element of the match funding for the language body um on the disabled adaptations and renovations I, as I said, I, um, I'm aware there is capital funding at the centre, so I'm hopeful on that, 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 that those bids were part of our over planning in, in the department. So it isn't that we haven't taken that work forward. Um, uh, we have uh, we worked on the basis that either between bids or easements that we've been able to cover that, so that, that works taken forward. On the um, NI, uh, and um, it is capital. Um, uh, it's for software and um, uh, computer upgrades um, which w- was due to happen anyway uh, um, as opposed to the new sites that were being created um, I think that that's all the, the points of being able to cover I think Thank you very
2: much folks um, I don't envy you, I know that budget this year is testing and um, I really do appreciate the work that yourselves and finance and others are doing in this matter because it's a tough year and I, I think we all recognise that, thank you
7: Thank you, Kelly. Um, If we could bring in Robin, then, please. Sure. Can I uh, thank thank the officers for for being with us uh, today? Um, I've just one short uh, question. It may well be that it's uh, my misunderstanding uh, of things. Can can I just ask the query, is there anything in here that we are bidding for uh, N-I-H-E, uh around the tar block strategy and the, because we've now started the process of uh, residents moving out of the tar blocks with the potential of demolition.
5: So the, my understanding is the tar blocks um, would fall under the, the, the landlord side of the housing executive, um, which may um, have the, their, their own property uh, Funding through the rents received and the reserves that have been built up, so it wouldn't be something that we bid for uh, directly as a department.
7: Okay, that's that, this? okay. So, so, um, so the I have to say, that. I wouldn't have thought that would have been landlord. But anyway, that that probably, was my only... come back that, sorry, that was my understanding.
5: And so we, I can double check on that, um, and we can come back to you to confirm the position um, on that.
7: Well, that would be my understanding. Okay. Yeah, well, if you could, because obviously over the next number of months, and yeah, it it is going to be a a very topical issue and uh, uh, a major cost, I would have imagined, uh, as as the months roll by. So if you could do that, I would be grateful. Thanks. Thank you, Chair.
0: Thank you, Robin. Um, I have Mark and then I have Andy, so if I could bring Mark in.
3: Thank you, Chair, and thanks to Gavin and Jerry uh, for the briefing, as al- always. Uh, m- most of the points have been raised, so I'm going to ask about something that's not on it, if you bear with me, but it's just a concern I have. It's around the £42 million that was passed in the budget for the welfare mitigation loopholes or, or, or the closure of them. Uh, the legislation hasn't come through yet, and so therefore hasn't been enacted, is there a danger that, if not in this monitoring round clearly, but that money will have to be surrendered in the future monitoring round if we're not able to spend it on that?
4: Uh, Mark, I'll take that question. Um, I guess in the absence of legislation, the department continues to make payments against the budget allocation relying on the sole authority of the Budget Act. So people are still receiving mitigation payments. Obviously, in relation to the loopholes, the department was allocated funding to close the loopholes in its opening budget for this financial year. There is a risk, yes, if the legislation is not progressed, there's potential for easements emerging in-year.
3: Yeah, and then, I mean, we're nearly a quarter of the way through the year already, so unless there's a retrospective element Included within the legislation, is it inevitable that there will be an easement or reduced requirement?
4: Um, it depends at the point in time that um, we see the legislation coming through. Um, obviously, at the minute we're forecasting for that legislation to be progressed. Obviously, we had funding, and it was only a small element of funding that's required actually to close the loopholes. However, in terms of uh, retrospective, I'm, I'm not. Sh- I haven't seen the legislation as yet. Um, but it's obviously Either. something from a financial perspective we would consider when the legislation becomes available because obviously that will affect um, payment pay entitlement.
3: OK, no, no, thanks, Sherry, but, but I think it's the line as, as a committee and, and it's not, not your problem or a problem of, of you guys making that if we don't get this legislation and we'll get it through soon that people in desperate need of this money aren't going to get it and we might end up losing it all together like they might lose it but the department might lose it too. Mm-hmm. Would be to women maybe we they have be helping vulnerable people but thank you
0: okay thanks mark um and then bring in andy please
3: thanks Chair. just to
8: Two quick points, just um, on the point that Mark raised, Cherry. Um, would we be able to get a breakdown of that? How much of the 42.8 million was for the existing mitigations? And I know you said it was only a small portion of the 42.8 was for closing the loopholes. Could we get a breakdown on that, please? Yes, I don't
4: have it with me to hand, but I'm happy to
8: provide. No worries. Thanks very much. And just another quick one. I don't see anything on special rules for turnaround. This is there any update in in that area?
4: Um, obviously, uh, the Minister is still keen to bring forward special rules for terminal illness and there's work ongoing within the department. We had submitted a bid um, for two, two months, or sorry, two million, um, and that was six months funding in the current financial year. Obviously, that bid, it wasn't met. Um, we're still undertaking policy development um, and we will bring forward to the executive um, in, in due course um, we haven't bid um, at this time. There's obviously a need to have discussions with um, HM Treasury on the issue of funding, um, and obviously works progressing within the department to see if we can bring forward and change special rules for terminal illness.
8: Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And given you bid um, previously for 1.95 million, w- w- why why was it that there was no bid put forward on, on this occasion?
4: Um, I- because Absolutely. of delays in progressing the legislation, we don't expect because there's a need for primary legislation yeah. that will be brought forward in this current financial year, um, and as a result, a further bid is not being submitted in the monitoring round.
8: So, was there a feeling previously when to the budget that we would have been in a place to, um, in respect of the 1.95 million, has that changed now? Yes, um,
4: whenever we um, had resubmitted our opening bids for the year um, and that would have been that would have been around about January time we felt that there would have been a time period that we would have been able to bring the legislation through um, and obviously um, because of ongoing delays and the fact that the budget hasn't been allocated to the department um, that, that has delayed that and now by the time we would factor in and bring forward the legislation we don't expect we will be able to issue payments in this current financial year.
8: Okay, I appreciate that. Sure, that. that that's extremely disappointing. Would we be able to write the department and get an update on where our work is on, on this at the moment?
0: Yep, absolutely, I can do.
8: Thanks, Cherry. Thanks, Gavin.
0: Okay, um, no other member has indicated that they want to ask anything further at this stage, so Cherry and Gavin, can I thank you for your time with us today? And I'm sure we'll okay. not be too long before we're speaking mm-hmm. to you again. Oh, I'm going to read that. Okay. Um, the thank you very much. Okay, thank you, thank you. Um, members, Then can we then um, ask the department to write to the committee after the ministerial June monitoring um, statement, asking what happened, re-June monitoring, monitoring and what the remaining budgetary challenges are for the department. So are members happy enough that we write and ask that, as well as the other proposals that um, we've had here today, yeah? Okay, happy enough. Um, Can I then um, ask then we move on to agenda item seven, which is a NICFA briefing on the impact of COVID-19. Members, you'll find this at page 75 of your meeting pack. And then can I welcome to the meeting Jeff Nuttall. Jeff, you're very welcome. Today, can I ask you then um, to uh, go ahead and present to the committee?
9: Okay, thank you. Um, Just check first whether the committee can see my slides. Yep. Like, but Yes, yep. we can indeed, we can. Uh, well, so thank you again for the opportunity to, to present the committee um, on the impact of COVID-19 on the voluntary community and social enterprise sector. Um, I'm Jeff Muddall, Head of Policy and Public Affairs for NICFA. Um, just a, a little bit of background, if those who aren't familiar with NICFA, we're the umbrella body for the voluntary community and social enterprise sector in Northern Ireland, and we have over 1,100 members. Uh, and on our database, we have uh, over 6,100 organizations employing over 53,000 staff and over 180,000 volunteers. Um, just to say a few words about the services that um, our sector delivers, um, we did, uh, we've done a, a number of pieces of research um, into um, the, the value of the services um, uh, that, that are delivered by the sector, um, in 2017, um, we, uh, in the uh, Cantor arm brown omnibus survey, um, we included questions um, asking a random selection of, of the public um, about the use of, of those services, and 9 out of 10 people said that in the last year they had used a service uh, by the sector, and that one in eight had actually said those services were essential to their lives. Uh, and very often there are services that are not available elsewhere and uh, are for people that are in the most need. Um, This year we've done a further survey into the services um, that the sector delivers for Northern Ireland Society right across a whole range of areas Um, and there's just a list here of some of the the key areas, the top ones being health and wellbeing, community cohesion and relations and safety, education and, and tackling poverty as well as a range of other areas. Um, And also there are important uh, specific services, um, maybe niche services such as emergency services and community transport. They're very important in certain areas. Um, So during the COVID-19 pandemic, we've been doing regular surveys of of the sector and of our our members um, really since March 2020. and uh, in the briefing that we sent to the committee, there, a number of the key findings are, are outlined and there are links to, to find out more detail on the individual surveys. But uh, in the, the last and the most recent of those surveys in November last year, um, the top three issues, and these are really consistently um, uh, the top issues in, in all of the surveys, sustaining organizations and their activities has top the list and closely related to that was finance and cash flow, um, and uh, and then also trying to change services to, to meet emerging needs. So I think a lot of organizations have simultaneously uh, had to respond to greater need in the community, um, but at the same time, the impact on their staff and volunteers and uh, income uh, has been uh, heavily affected. Um, in that survey as well, um, over a third of the organisations surveyed said that they lost service delivery, affecting over 100 beneficiaries a week. So, when you multiply that across the, the size of the sector, that's a, a large amount of vital public services uh, not being delivered. Um, in the August uh, 2020 survey that we did, we asked um, people at that point to look ahead. Um, and and what they expected to happen over the next six and the next 12 months. And over 60% of people said um, that they expected their capacity to deliver services to reduce uh, over the next 12 months. And that's obviously on top of reduced services that they were already reporting. Um, And over a quarter actually said that their uh, capacity to reduce, uh, their capacity to deliver services would reduce by between a quarter and three quarters. Um, nearly a third said that their income uh, they expected to fall by over 50 to uh, 75 percent in the next six months and in the august survey one in 25 said that they they thought their organization may not survive that figure rose to one in ten in november um these are a little bit wordy slides but i just wanted to give you also a flavor of some of the Uh, specific responses that uh, organisations gave on the impacts and the way that they've been affected. So um, impacts on service deliveries um, have included uh, issues such as being unable to deliver services because of the COVID restrictions. So for example, home assessments for families needing an assistance dog uh, weren't able to do those home assessments. Um, The impacts on staff and volunteers are reported regularly. So the well-being of staff and volunteers who again were very often under a lot of pressure the ability of volunteers to actually volunteer is heavily affected as well but also keeping staff safe as we sort of move through the pandemic and uh, people were trying to return to their normal places of work um, and also uh, to their normal uh, places where they, they offered their services um, keeping staff um, both safe and motivated has been a, a real issue um, again consistently impacts on, on the ability to fundraise so um, the one respondent here saying that they'd had, they'd had no meaningful income beyond the end of furlough because their main income stream from delivering services uh, they weren't able to do because they were face to face another thing that was reported quite regularly was the impact of um, funders' uh, expectations during this period. So whilst there had been quite a lot of flexibility in some ways, um, people were also still experiencing the fact that um, they were still under pressure to spend funding uh, by the end of the financial year as agreed in contracts that were agreed before the pandemic, and a pressure from funders to return to inverted commas normal. Um, Uh, and also to deliver outputs that that were in the original bids, um, even though obviously the situation that we're working in is very different. Um, Organisations also um, very affected by impacts on premises um, and uh, obviously the issues on building, uh, sorry, infection control, etc. but but also those that are perhaps um, trying to move premises or looking at new premises or unable to do so and we're left in limbo um, then just a, a, a little flavor as well of some of the ways in which organizations responded to the to the pandemic and, and also adapted their services so a lot of organizations were were running things like prescription runs food deliveries daily high calls. Uh, and on the community NI website that NICO hosts we uh, provided a space for people to post those services and there were well over 300 services posted on that um, during the pandemic um, uh, a lot of people um, those that were able at least um, were trying to deliver their services online where they could um, and using the, the normal platforms that we've all got used to um, also some were developing uh, services outdoors um, uh, where, where they could um, and people did report as well that certain services had, had increased demand during, because of the pandemic mental health and money advice being too um so just finally the, the i wanted to highlight some of the support needs that the organizations highlighted that they felt were most important during and post-covid um, these were these were some of the top the top issues. So mental health of staff and volunteers was very high. Fundraising capacity um, skills, um, obviously dil- directly related to infection um, control, actual equipment and training, um, and uh, digital and online skills and getting connected has really become a much bigger issue. Um, uh, as people have realized the importance of, of being connected uh, and I think that's something that um, we as Nicole will be wanting to do a lot more on. Um, and then also individuals, sub- of particular sectors have been affected in particular ways so this was just a, a, um, a, a response from um, an organization about the, the impact on sporting organizations um, who um, will still be affected, they say, for, for a considerable period of time, and that there needed to be tailored support. Um, so just um, more broadly, I think the sort of um, approaches that, that um, the respondents were asking for, particularly in relation to how government sort of engages with the sector, um, the need for long-term rather than an- annual funding was, was absolutely key, being able to look ahead looking at um, funding for new technology, and also funding regimes that were um, uh, not overly bureaucratic and also um, were genuinely covering the costs that organisations face, so full cost recovery is, is an issue that's come up a lot and um, uh, you know continues to be a, uh, an issue that, that is of concern. Um, and also um, the development, not only of revenue, but capital funding streams. And I know that the department is is looking at that at the moment and has been talking to us about capital needs of organisations. Um, I, I like to that. Um, physical infrastructure needs, I mentioned before, are important. Um, and that includes things like IT needs as well. Um, and then finally, I think the, the other thing that people were keen to to ensure was that, that there was a seat at the table for volunteer community organisations in the planning of recovery and renewal. I think um, things like the emergencies leadership group, um, which brought together the department, communities, and people in our sector, people were very um, uh, encouraged by that by the approach taken. There was a very um, flexible, responsive approach, um, cutting through some of the bureaucracy, and I think there's a real desire that. That those sort of approaches continue in the future, uh, not just in times of emergency, but as a way of working. Um, just wanted to say as well that um, this was happening against the backdrop of other pressures on the sector, and uh, you were uh, discussing the budget, the, the difficult budget situation that we're in, uh, and the one-year budgeting, um, and the bureaucracy and full cost recovery around, but around budgeting and funding um are, are issues that predate COVID and, and remain issues. And also the issues of um, that, that Brexit and the actual implementation of Brexit affecting not just businesses but also our sector um uh, in complying with new rules uh, and also their beneficiaries um and some of their staff and volunteers. Um so uh and another key area really is uh and this was mentioned earlier with the committee the the replacement with domestic policies and funding programs of important European funding programs like European Social Fund, where there is still a huge amount of uncertainty about the UK Share Prosperity Fund and the other funds that um, are intended to fill the space. Um, Just finally then, um, I just wanted to highlight a couple of opportunities that we see to address some of these issues and we are trying to address them. So Nicola, um, in discussion with the communities minister, has developed um, uh, what we're calling a manifesto for change. And it's really a blueprint for how we can improve and closer working between government and the voluntary community sector um, and address some of the the barriers that we think exist to to that uh, working um, as effectively as it could. And also uh, finding ways of, of valuing the the voice and experience of the sector in the future policy. Um, and then we're also talking to our counterparts in the south um, on, uh, on a range of uh, north and south issues, but in particular, one uh, that the shared experience of COVID has come uh, um, as an important issue. And we'll be looking at sharing what has worked in, in relation to COVID recovery uh, north and south. Uh, so hopefully that gives the committee a bit of a flavor of of some of the things that, that we've been um hearing uh, from our research on the impact of of covid on on the sector thank you
0: thank you jeff um for your your briefing with us today i think it has been said here many times and i'll say it again in this committee just how grateful and thankful we are for our community and voluntary sector um, for not only the work that they have done during this this past horrific year of COVID, but for all of those years of work they've done, you know, as someone who who worked in the health uh, service and someone who sat in health committee for years, you know, it it's just unbelievable the amount of specialties that we have out there amongst our our community and voluntary sector, and um, and they they should be praised at every turn for the work that they do. Um, I think that it is very worrying looking ahead and um, how we can support that sector. I think that every, every department within our executive needs to be worried because this touches everywhere, this touches every one of them. Um, and we know that the, the fallen income is going to have a serious impact. Is going to have an impact on service delivery, but so it's also going to have an impact on staff, and I, I'm and I'm glad that you mentioned that there about even uh, also the mental health of the staff as well, because quite often we um, we forget about that. Um, we all forget about that. We forget about all of our own personal circumstances. Um, that of, of everyone that works within any sort of job within the community, that it is tough and it is hard. And um, you know that that that's a worrying factor. Um, is, is that staff morale and staff mental health? Um, so it's just, I suppose, the first questions to ask. How high is it? You know, be brutally honest with us. Um, are we? Are, have have there been many staff losses? Are we looking at further staff losses? If there's not some sort of serious injection um, put into this sector. And also, then, about you talked there about many of the our, of our of our of within that sector that um, are are facing real financial challenges. Um, have you any indication of any of those uh, within the sector that will have to face closure, and therefore those valuable services that they provide, whether that's through communities health justice infrastructure whatever that might be um, how we're going to cope with that
9: Mm -hmm. well i think uh, um, as the sort of most recent surveying um was indicating that certainly when people were were looking at the future they were uh, you know around about 10 percent were concerned about their their survival i should i was going to mention as well that we are currently um, developing survey to look at some of the actual impacts to date. So we've, we we asked people during the, the various stages during the, the pandemic, what they, uh, you know, in some cases, you know, jobs and certainly volunteers uh, have been lost um, and were unable to volunteer. Um, and we want to get the actual picture. Um, I think the other difficulty has been that knowing the full picture once um, the some of the schemes that um, have been uh, implemented during during the, the, the crisis so furlough and communities fund etc the charities fund um, uh, you know when the uh, when we look at the sort of cold light of day um, after COVID then you know and even very uh, soon I think we may get a clearer picture of exactly how big the the impact has been um, but certainly it was having an impact last year, and the concerns for the coming six, twelve months were uh, very very uh, strong in November.
0: Just on the question around morale and mental health, uh, you know is there uh, you know are there policies, are there pathways there um, to assist the, the, all of those, whether it's paid staff or volunteers uh, within the sector?
9: Yes, uh, and actually, I mean, as part of the emergencies leadership group, there's been um, you know specific um, services um, and support um, uh, to uh, on mental health, uh, which NIP has been supporting, and along with uh, other organisations like Inspire Wellbeing. So um, I think it was recognised um, by that, and resources are being made available. Um, I think we are you know um, beginning to. Um, talk and do events with organizations on uh, you know how we return to work and some of that is about sort of practicalities of of return to work and perhaps in new ways of working post-covid but i think you know mental health um, will be part of that as well Um, so there are there there are uh, services um, uh, that we are signposting people to but um, i think every organization will probably have to deal you know, it will obviously know its own staff and volunteers and what the issues are there. So we just need to make sure that they are aware of what support is available.
0: No, and I suppose I mean you represent many organisations, as I said, with um, expertise in many many areas. And you know, you would just be able to hope that those that expertise and that help is available to share across that membership as well. Um, that they yeah. don't have to go out and look for it, that there is that support for each other um, within the membership of NICFA. Okay, I have a few members that have indicated they want to speak. I have Kelly, then Andy, and then Fra. So I'm going to go to Kelly first.
2: Oh, thank you, I'm, I'm off mute. Thank you very much, Jeff. Um, I'll declare an interest. Um, I think the organizations that I worked for were probably members of NICFA for about 20 years. So. Um, I've, I've had the joy of, of, of being helped by Nick on so many occasions. Geoff, um, thank you very much for your manifesto for change. Um, I will be pouring through that in detail um, because it's always better to find from the sector exactly what your, your solutions could be or your options that you want us to consider. But Jeff, I just wanted to tease out a couple of things for you. We had Volunteer Week last week, the 1st to the 7th of June, um, i am absolutely sure that all of those volunteers who didn't stop throughout the pandemic are exhausted and as you have raised um you know there are some help out there but we quite often find that, that volunteers and staff who work in, in community and voluntary sector organizations just take that moral commitment to the the nth degree and even though it they could be tired or they're financially out of pocket they always go that extra mile. They always go above and beyond the hours that they're expected to deliver. Um, so I just want to start off by saying I absolutely recognize that. And, and through Nikfa um, to all of your members, thank you very much. Um, but what I wanted to ask you about is, is there a potential coming up here for erosion of organisation's objectives and the reason why I ask that is because when I worked in the community and voluntary sector quite often, in order to survive in times when income from fundraising um, wasn't possible, we had to depend even more on the grants or the contracts that we would have had. Now, we only applied for grants and contracts where they met our objectives but sometimes those grants and contracts, especially from government or local government, um, We're on the peripheral of what our objectives were. And I'm just wondering, is there any concerns? I know it's not included in your um, presentation here, but is there anything that we need to be aware of that we could potentially be asking community and voluntary sector um, organisations to do work that equates to more than 50% of their business and delivering government contracts that that takes them and stretches their objectives?
9: Yeah, um, I think, uh, I mean, there is a there is a kind of an ongoing issue I suppose in relation to um, you know w- funding support for the sector and whether it's in any way sort of skewing the purposes of the organizations and um, you mentioned manifesto for change one of the, the key sort of themes within that is about you know addressing um, barriers and including that within the, the not within the funding relationship um, so i think we're, there are ongoing discussions about things like social value and procurement and ensuring that contracts um, you know are not just awarded to um, lowest cost or those that are able to uh just more efficient at, at, at bidding um and what we want to do is through the manifesto for change um uh, is is provide a space for discussion of different models of funding so whether it's procurement, whether it's grants. And also um, the other thing we're very keen to highlight is the is the large number of organisations that don't have funding from government, that generate their own income and they are often the ones that can fall off the radar. And you know we've got anecdotal examples during COVID where um, you know, they, they might rely on small community events to fundraise and they would just instantly not be able to do any of those things and fall off the radar. Uh, so we're trying to improve our intelligence on on those as well, but that's kind of why we wanted to look at all those things in the round because it, it's not just about funding; it's the way that it's delivered can, as you say, uh, have a big effect on how, how the organisations can actually use that support um, and whether it it's, you know it changes the nature of of what they do. Um, so uh, we, we're hoping that the manifesto for change will be an opportunity to to really work through some of those issues?
2: Um, my, I have another just couple of questions here, and they're both sort of tied into long-term funding and full-cost recovery. Um, it used to drive me to distraction when I was a director of a local charity um, that full-cost recovery was was never allowed or wasn't recognised, and to be honest, it was disgraceful. Um, they would give it through contracts to private companies that wouldn't recognise it for the community and voluntary sector, and it meant then that there was no recognition of reserves i actually had it where one government department required me to spend all their money and have a zero balance at the end of march which is just ridiculous so we we were not allowed then to save up money um through straight line you know straight line um depreciation even you know something that's allowed to replace computers so you have community, as you have mentioned, community and sector have said throughout the pandemic, the issue of access to internet and even the digital equipment that they're using, the hardware, um, could be very out of date. Um, so I'm just wondering, I know that the Concordat was reviewed and I'm very grateful for the department to work with yourselves and others um, about that, but I'm just wondering, is there anything else that we could be doing to ensure that all government departments, not just communities, because communities are not the only funder, that health or economy, or whoever is contracting or giving a grant to the community and voluntary sector, um, recognize that full-cost recovery is necessary and should be allowed. Now, they can certainly set a limit on that, but um, I know that 15% for administration, but is there something we could be doing for that? And then my tied-in question to that um, is about the long-term funding. I have a little bit of a concern, Jeff, and I would appreciate your input to this. So, as we know, one-year funding is appalling. It doesn't create efficiencies. It doesn't allow organisations to plan ahead effectively that actually would save money. So, when we're talking about long-term funding, what I'm not prepared to accept from any government department is that they talk about multi-year delivery, but that only year one may be actual money, and the other years then are guesstimates because that still doesn't allow a charity to plan ahead because you still don't have any guarantee. Now we are stuck with how Westminster pays us, and it's been one year at a time, but I'm just wondering if this starts to come forward on the long-term funding, do we have enough strength within the organisations through next year membership to say, no, we can't do this multi-year, it's not multi-year budgets, but multi-year programmes where the funding is only guaranteed for part of that, so just on FCR, is there anything more we can do on that, and on the long term funding, how we can ensure that long term funding, is not long term projects that we that we can back you on that. Okay, so on the full cost recovery, um, I mean one of the
9: the sort of places where this debate is being sort of we're trying to take it forward is through the, the joint government multi sector forum, which. Um, uh, over the last sort of couple of years in particular, has been um, looking at the whole issue of, um, and actually trying to get a picture of, of what, what it looks like across the different departments, because it does vary. And, um, you know, we're, we're, we're getting um, different approaches to things like capping the amount of money for, for pensions um, and that varying across departments. Um, and then um, other sort of issues where it's not entirely clear uh, you know, if there's a consistent approach. So we actually did uh, through the joint forum, um, a survey um, of NICFA members looking at their experiences with different funders and were able to generate quite a lot of information which led to some discussions between the forum members and um, both the Department of uh, um, Finance and, and Communities. And that, that work is ongoing, and the, the forum's had a bit of a, a, a revamp and review recently, and this is one of the themes that um, we're hoping to be taking forward. But I think it's very helpful, that the point you made earlier about it being not just one department, uh, that, it's, that it's a range of departments, and actually, you know, we do see a variation. Uh, and uh, one thing we wanted to do again through the manifesto for change is sort of highlight where we think there's good practice, in relation to, uh, you know, covering costs. Um, you know, having a level playing field, as you, you say before, I mean, uh, our sector is delivering health and social care services alongside the private sector and a whole range of other services, but it doesn't always feel like there's a level playing field uh, or even level access. And, and you know, the, the, the COVID crisis has kind of highlighted some of that, um, particularly in relation to things like social enterprises where I'm not quite sure if they're considered enterprises or not. Um, on your second point, just on, um, uh, I was just trying to remember the
2: uh, long-term projects as long-term
9: opposed to long-term. long-term, long-term, long-term. Uh, again, I think um, the thing that's been quite a lot in the discussion is the different approaches. So um, we've got sort of some people who've had a conversation with one department on, you know, the difficulties of a single year and whether they can, you know how what are the ways of looking ahead um the i know that um from my sort of former life in working in the environment sector uh DERA, um did go um through a period a few years ago of, of having longer term service level agreements for a uh, multi-years and uh, you know developing a partnership where it could reduce the bureaucracy um and uh, it, you know that Seemed like a good model, but I think as pressures hit, it was dropped. And I think there's a lot of discussion between different people in the sector with different experiences, with different departments, as to what is the way of doing this. Is it, you know, you you're given an offer for three years, but with a you know perhaps a review caveat, which it's bound to have to be some caveat if the Northern Ireland budget's only being done on a yearly basis. But as you say, maybe you, there could be more certainty around the figures um, because. Uh, You know, limping from year to year and limping against the backdrop of cuts. So it's not just standing still, but potentially cuts year on year, um, you know, we recognize is is very damaging long term for people staying in the sector as well.
2: It's that uh, I suppose where I'm coming from is I you know, I had to work through funding in the past that had to be black boxed. You know, a minister had to say, keep that money there for this organisation. I'm committed to funding them. It may not be, you know, spelled out clearly, so I'm going to black box that money. Um, so I'm just wondering, it's it's like that, you know, as you say, you can be offered a multi-year project with one year actuals and then year two or three or maybe two year actuals and year three and four um, are up, you know, for discussion depending on how it goes. But it's, it's what I've always been worried about with that type of um, approach has been where there are cuts. It's the community and voluntary sector the easiest to cut because they're always going to deliver the services because morally they're committed to doing so. Um, and, and it's that unfairness as she say It's 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 the fairness you wouldn't expect a private company um to do something for nothing, and you wouldn't expect a private company subsidise government services, but the community and voluntary sector do it. And to be honest, do with a smile on their face and do it with the best of intentions because they're so committed to people and so committed to making this place work. Um. No, as I say, the manifesto for change, I'm quite excited by. I always love it whenever the sector comes up with solutions because it's such an innovative um, sector. But I know you guys are tired. You have worked through this pandemic. Um, and I, all I can say is thank you for this and pass back through to Seamus um, and, and, and Una and everybody and NICFA my absolute appreciation for your work on this and for bringing forward this blueprint um because it it does give us something to work forward from thank you
9: thank you very much
0: okay thank you kelly um i'm going to move then to andy and then we have fran and karen so andy
8: thanks chair and can i declare an interest of the charity trustee of which is a member of nicfa um, and I would echo your comments as well, Chair, and thanking the sector a sector that always has stepped up to the mark, even before the pandemic, but if the pandemic has shown anything, the sector has further stepped up to the mark in providing um support to our wider communities. And, and thanks, Jeff, for your, your presentation. I'll try to keep my comments concise to let other members come in. Um, in terms of learning from the pandemic, um, is there any innovative learning that, that, that has come from the pandemic in terms of fundraising, perhaps? You know, you'd mentioned, obviously, traditional fundraising closed down overnight. So is there innovative learning?
9: Yeah, I mean, I think people, we were sort of trying to capture people responding during the pandemic in different ways. and. Um, the other thing that we do on fundraising, we do an annual uh, survey on individual giving um, and fundraising from individuals, and um, certainly we're seeing a big rise in digital uh, giving, and you know there's a strong interest in how to, how to capture that, and I think you know it's only been accelerated by COVID, um, which has just made all forms, I suppose, of contactless uh, and online um, activities much more. Uh, normal, um, so I think we'd expect there to be more in that in that field, um, uh, which you know may be useful for, for some. Um, but uh, you know the innovations, I suppose the, the, you know that a lot of them are around uh, ways of working and, and working online, etc. Um, uh, and apart from the, the the sort of online contactless fundraising or funding, is there individual giving? That those, I
8: can't think of any others yeah no and, and i suppose one of those learnings was the restrictions around online lotteries and it's good to see the department move to to rectify that i know it's something that's been uh, raised in the past but the pandemic has um encouraged the department to to remedy that um you, you'd mentioned during one of your answers to the chair about developing a further survey to perhaps get a uh, understanding of the state of the sector currently but in advance of that, sorry, um, do, do you have an indication as to when uh, that might be rolled out and when we'll have the feedback from that, and also in advance of that survey being rolled out, do you have any indication of obviously the emerging threats and, and also the opportunities um, for the sector moving forward?
9: Um, well, on the first point of what we are actually in the process of designing the survey at the moment, and we would you know be hoping to get that out, um, I would hope, in the next few weeks. Um, and we're probably going to look at the financial year um, April 2020 to March 2021. So, um, to kind of make a comparison of where people were at um, at the beginning and at the end of that financial year. So, we hope to have the results in the next couple of months um, uh, or as soon as, as, as we can. Um, uh, your second point um, sorry, could you did. Uh,
8: yeah so it was um, obviously we're, we're very cognizant of threats emerging threats and, and also yeah. opportunities
9: yeah um, I mean I think people um, obviously you know there's there's the straightforward threats to the survival of some organisations around you know the, the loss of income I think you know that the the responses during COVID through things like Charities Fund you know have been very important and um, you know I think hold back Some organisations from the brink. Um, So, uh, you know, hopefully um, people will, you know, that will limit the damage. Um, I think opportunities, uh, the ways of work, the way that people have seen that they can work and, you know, they've actually developed new services um, in response to COVID as well. I think there are opportunities in that. Um, You know, even as NICVA ourselves, we are, uh, you know, we, kind of transferred all of our activities online. Um, we're, we've been doing training programs online. Um, we kind of initially thought that training would, would you know, we, we sort of projected that it would have to be cut back. And in fact, we've ended up doing, a, a, you know, a huge amount of, of the normal amount of training that we would do. Um, and I think everyone's sort of been moving together and getting used to these ways of working, but now, that we have, um, there are there are big opportunities there. It makes it easier for organisations as well that you know don't have to travel uh, so far um, and have more access. So I think there are definitely opportunities in, in that sort of area.
8: Okay, absolutely, and. Um... Well, one, of, one of the ways you know nicfa moved to try to help um the sector at the early uh outside of the pandemic was such as grant tracker uh, and providing that service free I, is there any other sort of thinking around you know maybe the likes of Grant tracker conversation with the department around providing grant tra- grant tracker grand Tracker to organizations as a mainstay free of charge things
9: like that um uh, i mean i can't really uh uh, say on, on that specifically, um, I, there's no plan at the moment to, to do that. Um, obviously that, you know, there's a response during COVID, um, and, uh, we need, we need to kind of look at, at you know, what, what works for the future. Um, and, um, also I think, you know, it's a moving picture because there are a range of different services. So, um, like a lot of things, we kind of want to take stock of, um, what is best for the future, uh, and, um, so, you know, I think we're, we're thinking about that, and, but I'll certainly, you know, take on board what you're saying on, on that. Um, but I, we don't have any specific plans at the moment. Yeah,
8: and, and just finally, you'll be no doubt aware that the department have bid and received a, a amount of money uh, to further support the charity sector. H- has Nick for any thoughts as to how they would like to see the department roll that out in terms of uh, a wider support package?
9: Yeah, I mean, I think that there were meetings, I think, this week, weren't there, with, with a number of people in the sector on, on, on you know, sort of looking at initial thoughts on, um, you know, the best ways of directing that. And I think probably the main thing we would say is that, you know, it needs to be uh, long-term, you know, it needs to be thinking about strategic um, uh, support needs for the, for the future, for a sustainable uh, sector. Um and uh you know not not just sort of stock gap funding of um you know more of the same necessarily. I think we need to, to look at what's needed, what's needed now, but also in the future. And um that uh you know the that, that funding is, is guided towards that. Um uh, I think you know what we've suffered from in recent years is with the one year budgeting and um you know the the, the cuts uh is you know not, really being able to look at what's working well um, what should we be doing more of and i think we're always keen to encourage there to be a you know a a, a, a really clear transparent approach to funding what what works best in delivering outcomes um, and you know so i think that the funding should should be having that in mind that uh, we should be guided by what, we're, what outcomes we're trying to deliver uh, over the sort of medium to long term um, uh, and not simply a stopgap for uh, you know, carrying forward exactly what we're doing now.
8: Yeah, totally, and we need to build the sustainability within the wider sector. And in your presentation, Jeff, uh, touched on um, in terms of government support in some areas where Nick for feel that government could uh, better support the sector. Is there anything else that you feel that the government could be doing to support the sector moving forward? Information sharing—you had mentioned uh, the emergency, mm-hmm. emergency leadership group. Is there any other uh, processes or, or, or mechanisms that government can be putting in place to help the sector?
9: Well, I think uh, the, the manifesto change that was mentioned earlier. I think the, the the intention of that is to sort of highlight what we would see as the priorities, and we you know we've consulted the sector on it as well, and just to kind of you know. Uh, ensure that these are the key areas and i mean the main the, the main three areas that, that um that the manifest is looking at the first one is about improving that understanding and relationship between government and the sector um and uh you know finding different ways of actually doing that and uh having a clear policy uh on the sector um based on a on a real understanding the second area is really looking at uh, at the sort of mechanics of the barriers that there are for the sector through things like the funding approaches, that, you know, full cost recovery, etc., and also just compliance issues and just reviewing, you know, what um, what hoops is the sector jumping through, and are they all, you know, are they acting as a barrier? And then the other area I think is just getting a, a you know better mechanisms to to allow the sector to feed into policy making and and to not just co-design, but also co-deliver solutions. Um, so I think um, you know we're, we're working through that. Um, those recommendations now we're in discussion with the department on how we might engage with the sector to really kind of you know work through the detail of, of how those things could could happen. But I think a lot of it is about um, moving to a point where where there's a you know a better understanding. Um, mutually, I think, between the sector and government as to how we could most effectively work together and remove some of the barriers to that happening that exists at the moment.
8: Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and two final points, Chair. Um, I often heard it being said about the co-design piece around government, uh, and, and you touched on uh, a number of times throughout your, your comments, uh, Jeff, about the relationship between government and the sector. How do you feel that relationship is? Do you feel it's improved any, or, or do you, where do you feel that's at?
9: I think uh, I mean it, it definitely a lot of people reported during covid you know positive developments in relation to the the, the relationship and saying that the relationship was 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 you know had been very good uh, in in working together in response to covid and I think people want to build on that um, uh and I think you know there are still issues around um you know perennial issues around bureaucracy and uh, uh, that are you know very live at the moment and uh, but i think there's definitely a, a willingness um certainly in uh, you know, the department of communities uh, and um we hope we really want to bring you know, all of the departments in on that um because i think the you know the relationships are different with different departments uh, i think there are different issues so um it's it's really helpful i think to bring that across the departments and uh, look at you know encouraging the departments to, to look at the sector as a whole and and have a sort of consistently um, supportive approach um uh, so that's uh, you know there aren't a you know a lot of different um variable approaches being taken okay and so it'd be fair to say
8: that the relationship uh, the working relationship has improved but um you know there's a way to go still
9: i think there's definitely things that could be done and i think that's what 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 we want to do to the manifesto for change, is you know, highlight some of the obstacles and uh, you know look at what the good, the best practices, and try and make that best practice more uniform. Um, so that's really what we'd be keen to do. Yeah,
8: and, and just finally, um, I know you've covered an awful lot uh, through the various questions. Is there any additional learning that you haven't touched on throughout the pandemic, or even before the pandemic, um, that can be taken forward?
9: Um. Yeah, it's, it's, um, I suppose it's difficult because we're, we're still sort of taking stock um, and um, knowing exactly what our ways of working will look like. I think we're, we are beginning to work that through. So we've been running a number of events on, uh, you know, what we're calling blended working. So, um, you know, learning lessons from different ways of working online and in person, and um, I think we're... Uh, we, a lot of organizations in the sector are already thinking about this and we're sharing you know, experiences with them. So I think it's difficult to say exactly what, what the lessons of that will be yet, um, but maybe in six months time, we will, you know, we'll, if uh, with a fair wind, you know, we're, we're out of the other end of the pandemic, um, largely, and um, we've got the breath reading space to sort of really take stock of what what are the lessons? What are the things that we want to continue to do? What will work in the future? Um, you know, we're, we're we're going to work through that with the sector.
8: No problem at all. Thanks very much, Jeff. Thanks, Chair.
0: Okay. Thanks, thank Andy. Um, can then we bring in Fra? Please. Fra, go ahead.
1: Sure. Th- uh, thank you, uh, for that. Sorry. Uh, my finger hit the wrong button there, and uh, it cost me out the into oblivion there for a couple of seconds. But uh, I want to thank Jeff for the presentation. Uh, it's, it's, it's good to see uh, the likes of NICFA who are continuously to strategically plan uh, for the future and what has been a difficult uh, past uh, year. And, uh, and most of the questions that I was going to ask have been touched on. I know that uh, Kelly touched on full coverage. Cost recovery and the multi-year funding award, and uh I uh, 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 thank God that we have a minister in at present who is steeped uh, in the community sector, understands it, appreciates the work, and uh, will always argue their the, their their corner. Uh, but I think there's a number of things that uh, that, that 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 I would I would like to to say, and I know Jeff had touched uh, on on the, the likes of uh, pensions and things like that. But there are, there are quite a number of groups, and it was mentioned earlier on, the like and Neighbourhood renewal and others, uh, that, that haven't got pensions to look forward. They've given a lifetime service to the community. And uh, not that they, they are in it uh, for, for, for what they can get out of it, uh, but they, they, they have little to look forward to in terms of pensions and other things uh, for the future. And I think it's important that, uh, that, that, that we continue to focus in uh, on on that, uh, and and there are many within the community sector and uh, people would understand it uh, that uh, still don't feel uh, that they are pre- their worth is appreciated. And the, the and the, one of the things that I would have to say, uh, all of us have touched it at committee, wow. that uh, at a, a really really difficult time, uh, that the, these people. Uh, yeah rose to the challenge of uh, trying to make people's lives better on a very difficult occasion. And many times uh, their, 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 their very lives were at risk uh, at, the head of, at the head of this pandemic. And we should never forget that, and never forget uh, that without these people, uh, that many, many people uh, that, that, uh, that would have relied on uh, a, a t- people getting in touch or being fed uh, wouldn't have got that. So I just wanted to make make that point. I think that uh, there there are uh, uh, hundreds, and I, I'm actually I'm I meant to say at the start. Uh, I know people come in and say uh, that the current interest, you know, uh, I, I wouldn't like the current an interest. And in, uh, imagine all the groups that I'm a member of it would probably take me a half an hour. Uh, so I, I, I do think that uh, at a time uh, when it's difficult for community structures uh, that. What we need to do is to constantly reach out and ensure that by default and new ways of doing things, uh, that again, many of these community groups go to the the wall. And I hope that in the strategies that NICFA is working out and development at the present, that it takes them uh, into consideration. I think that's uh, an important uh, a, a, an important factor of community life at the, at the present time. It's going to be difficult for people. It's going to be hard for people uh, to move on. But we need to continuously clap them on the slap them on the back and say, "Job well done." We will help you uh, whenever, wherever, and in whatever capacity uh, that uh, uh, we, we we can. And that's my rant over for the, the, the for this session anyway. Jeff, thank you very much for the, the presentation. Thank you
0: thank you for our well said um I'm going to bring in karen please thank you chair and thank you
6: jeff and, and jeff about like fra uh coming at the end um all the questions have been asked you'll be glad to hear um because you've you've got quite a number today but i think it just shows you jeff the support that you have in relation to the committee members and how passionate we feel um, about it. And and also, I just want to echo um, Fra, the chair, and others, um, and put on the record our thanks to the community uh, workers, um, volunteers, and organizations like yourselves, not just in the pandam- pandemic, but particularly in the pandemic. I've seen the work that happened within my own community. Um, we have the Triax neighborhood renewal area where I live. Um, and uh, the work that was done over particularly the pandemic, um, the vital services that was provided, you listed many of them um, today, all of those and more, when we see many services disappear and some have yet to come back, um, unfortunately, Jeff, but as I know, you are well over um, all of the detail. We heard it here today, so for me, it's really good to hear um, a bit more around the work that is happening um, and that you still have a seat at the Joint Government and Community Sector Forum, because I know that going forward, that um, youth will be working hard in relation to that. Because for me, it isn't just that, uh, it is vitally important that, that you have a seat at the table, the community and voluntary sector, but that um, the sector's always involved in the coal design from the very very beginning, and not at the end, of delivery. Um, we've seen that too much over the years, and I know um, particularly Jeffy had answered questions there around the, the health and social care delivering a, a element of it. Um, and for me, I suppose what I should have said as well, I declared interest. My husband works in the sector. I worked there for 20 years. Um, all uh, the points that Kelly raised around... Um, uh, working on the sector, I, I went through that uh, as well, the vulnerability and the funding. But I don't see over the years, Jeff, and, and still see it, just that the, the community and voluntary sector just are at times not a valued partner. Um, and we have many organisations in the community and voluntary sector, particularly in the health and social care element, that have been delivering and working in partnership with us. Um, uh, health and social care for possibly 30 years. These organisations have been about, so when are they going to be trusted and, and valued? So um, I commend you on the work that you are taking forward and representing them groups and moving through government on, on that. Um, as Friar has said, we're lucky we have a Minister who is uh, very grounded and embedded in the community and volunteer sector and committed to the work. Um, Unfortunately for somebody like myself and Minister Harvey, um, we did see a deadly pandemic that delayed a lot of the work that I know that um, the Minister wanted to take forward in relation to the sector. And you would have heard me speak earlier around um, the pay and terms and conditions, particularly for workers in the neighbourhood renewal and supporting people. But I know they're not the only ones um, that has been going on for many, many years. And as Farah said, um, they put themselves forward. They're not even asking, and never would, for a pay increase when we see other sectors of workers mobilising. Um, and I just think that that's a complete injustice, and, and we do need to look at that because, as fra pointed out, um, people then don't even have a pension at the end of this. So a lot of work that has to be done, but lucky that we have a master that's committed and working towards it. And just on the... the um, the funding. Um, I suppose what I wanted to say, agree on all the approaches as well, Jeff. Um, good to see you around. the welcome the key piece around the manifesto for change, and then in terms of the full cost recovery and funding model. Just, um, I was part of the education spokesperson um, for the the last period, and EA yes brought on a new funding model. Jeff, I'm sure you're aware of it, because you're over everything. Um, And I I just thought that it it was really good. Um, It reminded me uh, very much in terms of the lottery funding, and I know they work very closely with them. So they've got a full cost recovery, three year budget with flexibility in it. Um, uh, And I know they're just starting out in that and they will assess it as it goes along. But if we can do that through a government department, um. Uh. We certainly should be able to do it three hours. So there's good. There's a lot of learning out there. A lot of good practice, and I suppose that needs to be taken forward. But um, I know that that's part of the work. So um, just a, a thanks for me, and um, thank you to the for taking us over and bringing us up to speed on the current issues as well. Thank
0: you, Chair. Thank you. Thank you. Karen, um, no other member has indicated that they want to come in at this stage. Um, Jeff, I think you heard resounding appreciation um, from everyone in, in this committee and I think uh, you, 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 you will be aware that we will continue um, to lobby on behalf of, of the sector that you represent. So could I just ask then that you take that back to your, uh, your members? Just how much we do appreciate, as I said, not and as other members have said, not just the past year, but the many, many years uh, of service um, to the various sectors uh, within Northern Ireland. So thank you for joining us today, Jeff.
9: We really appreciate that. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. Okay, members, we're going to move on to agenda item eight, where we have a briefing from CO three on the impact of COVID nineteen. You'll find the papers for this item at page ninety-four of your meeting packs. And then can I welcome to the meeting Nora Smith, Richard Spratt and Michelle Jeans. So Nora, how are you? Over to you.
10: Yeah, I'm I'm good. Thank you, Paula. Um so just to start with a, a an introduction to who CO three is. So for those that in the of CO three, we're a membership-based charity. Our members operate at a senior leadership level, working across the charity and social enterprise sector. and We've just over seven hundred members, and you know I want to put on record that we welcome and thank the committee for their focus on COVID nineteen and the charity sector. You know today is important both for us to reflect back, but also to look forward. And you know what's really important here is that we learn the right lessons from the pandemic. So I suppose it's really important to highlight that leading an organization during COVID-19 is hard in any sector, but the lack of funds, increased demand for services and an uncertain path has made it extremely challenging for our sector. It has created the perfect storm for so many of our members, increasing the vulnerability of our most vulnerable across society, whilst challenging the ability of charities and social enterprises to respond with some of our members' experience huge drops in their income, um, with their funding model literally falling off the edge of a cliff. So if I may, I may thanks and pay homage to our members and indeed the wider sector, who have stepped up and protected and supported the most vulnerable in society over the course of the past 14, 15 months. Our sector has demonstrated strength. It has demonstrated flexibilities, with leaders being able to step up to quickly respond, to work collaboratively with government, Forging new relationships and strengthening existing ones. And I think what's, what's important about this pandemic is that COVID 19 has turned an overdue spotlight on the vital role that charities and social enter- enterprises play uh, in helping our most vulnerable in society. So, th- through the pandemic, CO3 is been advocating and highlighting the challenges of COVID 19 on the sector the pandemic did hit our sector hard everyone was impacted however the scale of the financial impact did vary across the across the sector the full sector has been forced to adapt and change Um, we've all had to become tech savvy overnight um, and respond to changing demand by moving support services online keeping connections to vulnerable people um, by making thousands of calls involved in the delivery of food parcels, medicines, and keeping those social connections alive. And I think what's what's being really demonstrated is our our value and worth with those strong links within communities, and that's been a critical part of the response, providing literally a lifeline and keeping people connected and healthy. So 15 months into the pandemic, and to date, no, no charity has had to close yet. And this was due to a number of factors. Members reduced expenditures and services to mitigate against income losses. Furlough was accessed. Um, Mothballing services as a consequence. But ultimately for the longer term protection of organisations and services they provide. And for some charities, access to the um, COVID-19 and the social enterprise fund and um, delivered through DFC. And of course then you had independent trusts and foundations that were able to step up offering a range of grants, as well as providing flexibility with existing grants. And the same is true of the public sector. We've seen government departments and arm's length um, organizations demonstrating a level of flexibility and cooperation, which has set a precedent, I think, for, for the future and a different way of working. Unfortunately, and we, we've touched upon this already in, in Jeff's presentation, we've seen some members having to make redundancies. And our most recent survey, which we, we carried out last month, are already considering redundancies and a further 40% have stated that they may have to start this over the course of the next six months. And of course, this has many implications, including diminishing our ability to retain talented people in this sector, the impact it has on individuals and families, and of course, on key services that we provide across the sector we have entered a new phase of the pandemic with lockdown restrictions easing which offers hope and offers opportunities but the uncertainty of our world still makes it really difficult to plan and to strategize you know, pre-pandemic the sector was already exposed to a range of issues and challenges you know, the short-term funding funding cuts and or no uplifts in funding and the funding models not based on full cost recovery and the short-term nature of funding as well And there was, and still is to a certain degree, lots of talk about building back better, and the pandemic has exposed our strengths, our challenges, and our vulnerabilities as a sector. So today, I think it's an important um, opportunity for us to learn the right lessons from the pandemic. Ultimately, you know, my instinct is that our our sector's survival depends on it. Building back better has to represent fundamental changes. So the National Lottery Community Fund recently launched a briefing offering their insight into administering the first phase of the DFC COVID-19 fund. So if you haven't read it already, please, please do. It's on their website. And one of the conclusions that they had reached is that it's likely that the charity sector will fall into further financial risk. They also talked about the need for longer-term funding in order to develop and um, sustainable charities. And, I listened to Jeff's presentation and um, he brought up similar points to what I'm just about to raise. The need to reduce bureaucracy linked to public sector funding, red tape stifles innovation, and a more flexible approach is needed to funding if you're going to focus on the outcomes rather than on the paperwork. And of course, this is linked to changing the fundamental the, the, the funding model. Short-term nature of funding, it has to change. You know, in a recent survey of our members carried out in November. Um, On the issue of full cost recovery, 75% of respondents stated that they're funded on an annual basis. 66% also stated that they're not funded on a full cost recovery basis. And one quarter of those organizations have had to subsidize contracts by over 50,000. So this just isn't sustainable. So I've I've listed a number of recommendations in the briefing paper today. I'm not going to repeat those in the interest of um, saving time um, and giving and the opportunity for Michelle and Richard (coughs) to offer their insights and experiences of the pandemic as well. Thank you.
0: Okay, thank you. Michelle or Richard, have you anything that you want to add at this stage
11: yet? Michelle, after you.
12: Thank you Richard. Um, Good afternoon everybody. Thank you Chair. Uh, My name is Michelle James and I'm head of Bernardo's here in in Northern Ireland. You'll all know we're the the largest children's charity in Northern Ireland and each year we work with approximately 18,000 children, young people and their families right across about 45 different services and programmes. And throughout the pandemic our services continued to operate while also adapting and responding. We've all talked about digital offers, but response to new challenges that, that, we, that we faced. We continued to support our children and their families when they needed us more than ever. However, the pandemics hit us hard, and the demand for our services rose, but our ability to raise funds decreased. Our shops were closed, and normal fundraising activities couldn't take place, and this had a significant impact on our finances, and there are still considerable challenges ahead. Bonaros Northern Ireland has a good relationship with the Department for Communities, and recently we participated in the Department's Access to Food Engagement Event. We co-chair the Anti-Poverty Strategy Co-design Group with the Department, and we value the opportunity to collaborate with DFC. And we appreciate the Department's commitment to shared purpose, learning, and focus on on reducing vulnerability. We welcomed the COVID-19 related initiatives, which mitigated some of the negative impacts of the pandemic, including the furlough scheme, the department's BSE recovery fund, and we were also pleased to be asked by the department to distribute a seasonal appeal in December 2020 to children and families that needed support. Over a period of only a few weeks, we distributed £210,000 worth of food vouchers and practical support which benefited 9,000 children and families in Northern Ireland. Therefore, we were very disappointed when we were deemed ineligible for the DFC COVID-19 Charity Fund. Our governance arrangements are appropriately robust to maintain DFC contracts, you know, we talked earlier about supporting people in uh, neighborhood renewing. And, and it's also um, appropriately robust to distribute much needed funding to vulnerable families. So it was really disheartening that our application was rejected. As we demonstrated with the seasonal period, we work in local communities all across Northern Ireland with some of the most vulnerable children and young people, including children with disabilities, children at risk of sexual exploitation, and children in care. We would urge the department to reconsider the criteria for future funding so that our children and families across Northern Ireland are not left without support and listened to Jeff talking earlier and listened to Kelly and also with what Nora said, another major concern for us is full cost recovery. Many of our services are not contracted with <clears throat> full cost recovery, with the remainder being subsidised by Bernardo's Northern Ireland voluntary funds, which we raise through our shops and fundraising activities. This is unsustainable, and in the past year this has unfortunately led to to service closure, and some of you might be aware around our our autism service, which was around for twenty years, had to close. Finally, we want to highlight the benefits of longer term commissioning, and you've flagged this, we've all talked about this. Um, You know, longer contracts will encourage a more strategic use of resources and support efficiency within DFC, allowing community and voluntary sector organisations to improve services, innovate, provide continuity and stability, not only for our children and their families, but also for our staff. A move to commissioning cycles of three to five years will allow us to focus on service delivery rather than funding applications. In summary you know we'd have three asked that we move to full cost recovery to the default for all contracts, but there's a move to longer term commissioning cycles with a minimum, a very minimum of three years. So that only then we'll be able to measure the you know, outcomes properly and i would ask that we expand the eligibility criteria for the next round of funding for the charities operating in northern ireland especially those on the section list. thank you for listening to me
0: thank you michelle richard
11: yes uh thank you chair for the opportunity to um present and address the committee this morning Uh, For those who don't know, Cancer Focus Northern Ireland is uh, the longest standing local cancer charity here, uh, working right across the cancer spectrum, uh, leading on the important work of of prevention to try and reduce the incidence of cancer and and the the, the cost of that in the future, providing patient services, uh, supporting people practically, emotionally and psychologically, um, investing in groundbreaking research, and also uh, advocating uh, at policy level. Uh, And the last few months have been the most challenging in our 52-year history as it has been for for many organisations and colleagues across the sector. Um, We we work with thousands of families that that receive the devastating news of a cancer diagnosis every year. Um, The financial impact of COVID on our organisation has been devastating uh, and leading to disruption of, of of the support of those people. Uh, we like many organizations in the sector don't receive an appropriate level of statutory funding and historically rely as has been mentioned in previous uh, submissions on voluntary income uh, from public fundraising initiatives to fund most of our work uh in our case 85 to 90 percent of of our portfolio of work over the years so therefore as a consequence the pandemic has been very serious for our organization uh in the last 15 months we have lost in excess of one and a half million of income um, between our charity retail function and community and event fundraising programmes being understandably but severely disrupted uh, through lockdown. We're currently budgeting for our, our own finan- our new financial year which begins in August um, and there remain high levels of uncertainty uh, about the recovery. I would like to, to put on record and to acknowledge the, um, and thank the committee as a grateful recipient uh, from both the COVID-19 charity fund rounds and also the social enterprise fund Uh, we did meet the eligibility criteria that was set uh, and had the opportunity to apply and draw down uh, support from these sources and I would say coupled with the furlough scheme uh, that has been a lifeline gone some way to filling the void that has been left in our fundraising income otherwise the consequences would have been catastrophic Uh, But we have had to react uh, and again speaking to many other colleagues uh, in the sector and through the CO3 network, um, we have had to put in place very acute cost reduction strategies in in order to deal with uh, the context that we find ourselves in. Uh, And we have unfortunately had to embark on redundancy processes uh, and reducing a staff team of over 100 by 15%. And obviously we've tried to minimize the disruption to our frontline services. Um, but haven't been able to avoid some level of service reduction and disruption. And this has impacted the patients and the families that we seek to serve. And these decisions are not taken lightly but have been necessary, and as Nora has indicated, to protect and to maintain the medium to long-term viability uh, of, of what we do and what we offer. Uh, but I would have concern sectorally in terms of a general contraction uh, and the impact um, on, on patients going forward. Just to give the committee a tangible example uh, of one aspect of our work that has been affected on the consequential human impact uh, cancer focus northern ireland provides um, most of the psychological and emotional support of cancer patients across the five health trusts in a range of settings including in hospitals uh, in the home and in the community and while we have morphed this service and many of our services to a remote basis um, Unfortunately, this um, has been impacted by the effects of uh, the financial effects of COVID due to us not receiving uh, full cost recovery from from, uh, statutory sources. Uh, And we had at one point for a period of five to six months reduced that capacity by 75%. And you can imagine uh, in a context of increased need, uh, heightened levels of anxiety, um, and the well-documented cases of, of, of patients receiving later diagnosis and disruptions treatment, um, the need for this service actually spiked um, and the waiting times increased considerably uh, for the counselling services during uh, the pandemic. Uh, finally, I, I just would like to concur with, with a lot of the comments that have been made in terms of our sector. Um, I am new to the sector, uh, having been a post for nine, nine or ten months, but. Um, the work of the sector is, is remarkable. Um, the resilience um, has been demonstrated over the last few months and the creativity and the ability to innovate and, and morph very, very quickly. Uh, but I would just um, underline uh, what is offered being truly valued and that actually being ref- reflected in some of the conversations on the potential changes to fund- funding models going forward. Um, Whilst we're very thankful for the support that I offered to date, I would just urge the committee that there does need to be provision uh, for continued and sustained long-term funding uh, multi-year to enable ourselves and others to plan more effectively, um, and again to advocate for the mainstreaming of core services such as psycho oncology and cancer counselling and other vital services um, from from such resources. And again, I echo the comments around full cost recovery. Um, I would like to, to acknowledge the, the, the five million that has been set aside um, and that will be um, administered uh, in, in due course of, from the announcement that was made in May time and again just that the committee is, is aware a lot of organisations like ourselves have had to cut their cloth, uh, have had to make cost reductions accordingly and going forward that the criteria is open so that where we maybe have balanced budgets going forward. Um, that any eligibility criteria set is not prohibitive to those organisations that have taken these steps. Um, so thank you very much indeed for the opportunity to come and present this morning. Thank you.
0: Thank you, um, Richard, um, Michelle and for that. Um, I suppose I'll begin with this briefing as of previous just by um, just wanting to say how much we appreciate all that um, has been done um, not just in this past year, but in the many, many years um, of fulfilling a much much needed services out there and at your level of expertise that you have within those services, um, it cannot be matched um, and I very much know the value and I mean much of what you 're raising are issues that we have raised on on many different issues, whether that's the you know the three year funding and commissioning cycle, we could probably put that beside uh, nearly everything that we do. Within the, the communities committee, um, so we absolutely that is something that we would all agree with. Um, I I was very good. To, I know other members had asked it on our last presentation about lessons learned, um, and I think that um, you very much had put down some stuff here within your, your briefing, Nora, um, about lessons learned. So maybe want to just explore that a little bit further, and um, also want to just. Uh, You've written here about the, the high levels of, of anxiety on um, staff due to increased demands for the service. Just how that you are managing that and how you're handling that, um, especially given that uh, there's been an increase in demand, yet a, a decrease in the amount of money that's coming through. And, and I also know, because we, we're all impacted by the fact that we're having to work remotely, and working remotely has an effect on us all, Um, When we can't be with each other and we can't, um, you know, I I remember when I worked in social services, we had that sort of time uh, on a Friday for coming out of your role and being able to offload and being able to share experiences. So it's just how, how have you have been managing with all of that as well. Um, but I just say it's that lessons learned, Nora, that I probably want to touch on, whether that is, and I know you'd said here about the timing and the design of allocations uh, on, on previous funding. And all but we know a lot of those allocations that have been done over the past year have had been done, you know, have had to been developed very, very fast. And have to been ruled out uh, in a timely manner as well. Um, so it, it's not that I'm trying to put any blame there. It's just that i um, going forward because none of us knows what lies ahead over the next year as well. Um, just then, how would you see a better? Um, and I know you'd written there, or put in there about the, that the whole co-design um, with with actually yourselves as representatives of the sectors. So just a few things there.
10: Um, yeah, it's just to touch on the, the the health and well-being piece. It's it is enormous, um, um, and and it, it does predate the pandemic as well, though. Yeah. You know the the sector has been stretched and pulled. Um, you know, and it does it comes back to the funding model. Um, you know the, the you know the, the, the basis of full cost recovery is that it doesn't support the engine room costs. So as a result, then you know, you're trying to do more with less. And it's such a cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason as well. So even before the pandemic um, commenced, you know, there there was a high sense of job insecurity and anxiousness and people already feeling overworked. And then the pandemic hit, and it was just a whole new layer. Um, So it, it, it does come down to job security. It does come down to, you know, I think a big piece of this could be answered in relation to how the sector is fundamentally funded. Um, and of course, you know the, the opportunity to have access to health and wellbeing services is really important and something that lots of our members would do anyway for their staff. But whenever you're not able to offer them job security or whenever you have to put half your staff on furlough and then the other half have to um, take on the responsibility of, of, of more work, it takes its toll, and it's taken its toll over many years. Um, so, I'm I'm not sure if I've offered any solutions there, but I think it is just important to to to, uh, to highlight that. Um. So, in in relation to the, the lessons learned, you know, and we are, you know, we're all still learning through this pandemic. Um. And I do think, you know, the, the opportunity to to co-design a, a criteria that represents where the sector where the sector is now with this five million pound. Would be would be um, would be hugely beneficial, and I know that the DFC did consult and engage with a range of um, the sector representatives and, and different members. But then they ultimately went into a room and um, you know wrote wrote the criteria um, and issued it. I think there is an opportunity to do that differently, and um, you know to sit down with sector representatives, including ourselves and NICFA and others around the table to look at well, what is it that we need now and what should that criteria look like. Um, and, you know, We have to be realistic as well. This is only £5 million. It's not going to touch the sides. Um, but I, I don't think that that should be something that the AFCs would necessarily worry about because it will only demonstrate the demand and the need to invest and build in um, stronger proposals to bid for, for more money moving forward.
0: I yeah, just want also um, then, and probably uh, just to ask that of as part of Michelle as well, I note there, Nora, in your submission you had said that um, when the, the DFC Charity Fund reopened in 2020, January 2021, um, we still haven't received the information on that, of who was funded and that hasn't been published. Are the amounts? Is that correct?
10: It, it, it is correct, and I was speaking to an official. Um, I was speaking to jo- Joanna um, earlier this week, who was able to give me um, some awesome updated stats. So she had informed me that there, I think there was an additional seven million that was allocated. So the total funding to the sector allocated was twenty over just, just over twenty million, and I think there were seven hundred, possibly seven hundred charities that had benefited from it. Um, and as, as well just to put on record co3 were one of those beneficiaries as well and we are really grateful for that support um, but unfortunately it did lock out that criteria did lock out some members that did need and um, did they access to it like Bernardo's and others
0: yeah and it's just well we can ask um, um, as a committee that they they um, for more information around that um, fund on the allocations uh, and the amounts um, but just then, I know, Michelle, you're one of those charities then is that is that it, it, their headquarters is not based here in Northern Ireland. And I know that when we got a briefing, and other members can correct me when they come in if I'm wrong, um, we had got a briefing on that, you know, a few months ago, and the department were very much trying to work around that. So I take it they were unable to work around that?
12: Yeah, they were, Chair. They were unable to work around it, so we lost... Um nearly a million pounds last year in terms of fundraising and with the shops being closed and we applied for 75,000 and the uh, ineligible bit was that we are not registered as a charity in Northern Ireland because we're already registered in UK and in Scotland and so we're on we're sitting like lots of other charities on the combined list with the Charity Commission here this as a section 167 organisation and so so we're waiting and we will of course register when when that opportunity arrives um and i did talk to officials as well who um there were some assumptions made about when money comes out from other jurisdictions that we would benefit and that's actually not the case
0: yeah Yeah, again i i do remember the conversations here in committee around this and how that, Mm -hmm. um, that we had highlighted that and the committee had highlighted on the back of of previous Um, witness sessions with with yourselves and we thought that there had been some sort of um, room had been made there or they'd made some sort of headway but now you're telling us they haven't. We'll need to have to go back and ask those questions around that as well. I'm going to open up uh, to members um, of Robin and then of Kelly and then Karen. So I'm going to bring Robin in first.
7: Thank you, Chair. Can I Uh, Thank uh, Nora, Michelle and Richard uh, for uh, being in attendance today and and like uh, others uh, and very similar to the presentation, I think the work that you've done over the pandemic period is greatly appreciated um, and uh, valued, I think, think, by all. Not that that makes any difference, I think it's valued across the communities uh, across uh, the folk of Northern Ireland every day of the year. I wonder, could I just pose, uh, you and Nora answered a few questions there from the chair, which uh, I had on my list. Uh, so I wonder, could you, um, in terms of uh, addressing the issues that you've, you've raised, and I've no doubt that the members of the communities committee will indeed be supportive of you but uh, in terms of how you take your message forward uh, into the wider political context and the wider decision-making context what what is your strategy uh, in terms of of moving that forward Uh, can i ask that as number one and then perhaps specifically to to michelle uh michelle i i also sit on the Uh, uh, education committee Uh, and there is a great deal of uh, support within the education committee uh, for those children uh, and I suppose the pandemic has highlighted the issue, those children who are at risk uh, or or in care Uh, and indeed the difficulties that those children had in keeping up with uh, education and support and I do believe that there, there, there would be a mind in the uh, amongst the education members uh, to support specific initiatives to to address those children um, uh, needs. And then perhaps to Richard, Richard, you mentioned the five million budget uh, allocation. Um, Maybe you could just update, uh, certainly update me uh, on the, the thinking of that 5 million and when access to that will be, become available and maybe what criteria is perhaps being developed uh, to make it uh, available. Yeah, who Thank
0: wants sir. to go first. <laughs> or, do you want yeah. to go first or, or Richard or, G- or Michelle either?
10: Richard,
11: you're you are, you, are you. Like to... okay. Um, yeah, thanks, Robin, for the question. Um, I think, uh, at this stage, I think the, the, the funding has been announced. Um, but uh, m- my information is that the, there's no information as yet, uh, in terms of confirmation of the criteria. Uh, my point was just uh, that a lot of remedial action has been taken by organizations, uh, and I would just be uh, cognizant that if the criteria was similar in terms of demonstrating uh you know deficit budgets and uh, costs that were unavoidable within a particular period of time uh, a lot of organizations have morphed and had to adapt and uh, w- w- we as an example have worked towards a balanced budget but that is off the back of a ver- fairly acute cost reduction piece of work and um, so i would just worry um, that if similar criteria was applied it could be prohibitive to more organisations. Um, and I know Michelle has some thoughts around you know the, the criteria from, from from the last round as well. So that that, that was the point that I was uh, seeking to make. Okay,
7: thank you
12: Richard Yeah just oh sorry It's okay. Um thank you Robin for your for your question. There are extensive needs that were you know that have been identified for a long time specifically around children at risk or children who are looked after um, by by the state um, and the pandemic has exasperated them you are right and I know we, we would have talked regularly with colleagues in education whether that's at committee or within the department or within the education authority um, and we recently contributed also to the um the piece on on educational underachievement i um i I think that we've got to look at you know how this pandemic not only has um affected specific groups of children because i'm also thinking about young carers, but also how we um sustainably um work together and fund initiatives that are going to ultimately change the outcomes for all children in Northern Ireland. Um, and I think we've, the way that we do that is not only by working together as a sector with our partners in the statutory sector too, but also cross-government and using the legislation that exists already in terms of the cooperation with Children's Bill um, to do that. I think if we pull resources together in a more effective way, in a more strategic way, will achieve better outcomes for, for all of our children. Um, there are some initiatives that have been announced recently in relation to funding from both health and education, but I would highlight there's one significant investment that has been announced recently in education, and the funding was, is significant, and the voluntary community sector are eligible to, to apply. However, there's no staffing costs built into those. So if you want to deliver services, uh, new services to vulnerable children or children in communities over the summer there's money for programs but there's no money for staff and even if you do, if I could put volunteers in to lead that work which which is an option, um, volunteers require support they require supervision there are governance procedures and processes that we need to build in around them to make sure that it's safe for everybody so it's just um, that, that there's there's always a bit of a we, you know, we can do this, but actually then we're not funded properly to do it. Does that answer your question, Robin?
7: Yeah, it, it does, Michelle, and uh, I, would, I would say I would, uh, if you felt uh, appropriate, uh, I would welcome uh, a short, uh, I'll just call it a letter or a memo uh, yeah. on your thoughts around the, the, that, 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 that uh, intervention type work, yeah.
12: Okay, that's no bother. Thank you.
10: Yeah, and then, Robin, just before I get to your question about the strategy for moving the issue forward, in terms of the, the criteria and the timescales um, for this new £5 million fund, um, we don't know what the criteria is yet, um, DFC is, it's, it's talking to a range of, of, um, of partners across the community and voluntary sector, um, but from our perspective, what we're asking is, you know, let's sit down in a room and design this together so that it's more than just consulting with us and then going off and designing the criteria. And also, I think what's really important is whoever's going to be the delivery partner as well, whether that's the National Community um, Fund or whether it's the um, Community Finance Ireland, that they're part of that process as well. Um, And the criteria has to change. we are in a completely different stage of this pandemic. And as Michelle and Richard have pointed out, they've cut their cloth accordingly. So we need to have a fund which demonstrates we're at a different point, but still in a really vulnerable position. Um, so that opportunity to have, you know, five, six, seven heads round the table with different perspectives on this, I think would really add value and come up with a criteria pretty quickly, I would say, um, you know, to, to enable the time scale for this to, 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 to happen sooner rather than later. Because I am aware, you know, we're, we I now hitting mid June, and this has to be spent by March of next year, which, you know, will will be here and will here in a flash. And in terms of the strategy for moving these issues forward, yeah. Um, so I suppose there's 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 different ways in which we're approaching this. So we, we sent the full cost recovery report to a range of different government ministers. We had a roundtable with with um, the finance minister Conor Murphy um, about six seven weeks ago. And that resulted in one of our members being involved in an innovation lab through the Department of Finance about how we design public procurement policy, which ensures that full cost recovery is built into it, and as as, as well as sitting alongside social value. But I think it's important not to confuse the two. They are different, but they are interconnected. Um, I think there's also an education piece as well as with how we build our relationships. Across government departments and with government departments as well. So, initiatives that CO3 is being involved in, and um, that Michelle actually participated in a few years ago, was the, um, the cross sector leadership exchange that we do with the chief executives forum. So, again, it's an opportunity for senior civil servants and third sector leaders to step into each other's world to build that better understanding because we're not going to. Break down those barriers until we understand how our how respective worlds um, function, and there are some similarities, but there are also huge differences, and um, which which does impact on one another. And then bringing our members together, that convening space, um, reaching out to 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 the likes of yourselves at, at, at committees, and bringing these bringing this important issue to the table. And we will be reconvening members again, and in, in, in the next couple of months, just to look at full cost recovery, it, we launched the report and, and just after Christmas, where are we now? What progress have or haven't we made? And then what do we need to do moving forward? And it is, it's about having seats at the right table and being, but being invited along, you know, so we're, we're knocking on lots of different doors. So sometimes they're opened, sometimes it just takes a bit longer.
7: Okay, thank you, yeah, thank you Nora. Chair, uh, perhaps uh, we as the committee, uh, through yourself, could maybe seek clarity on the five million budget allocation um, uh, if, if, if on behalf of, um, to address the questions that both Richard and Nora uh, in particular have, have raised today?
0: No, absolutely, we can certainly
7: do that, not a problem. Um, just, okay, all, just
0: Thanks, Robin. Just also to inform members, the committee clerk has just informed me that the breakdown of the Charities Fund allocation will be in our pack next week, so we'll be able to see that next week. Um, uh, Just before we go off writing to anybody, it's going to be there next week. Um, Okay, I'm going to move on. Thank you, Robin. Was that you finished Yeah. Yeah.
7: Yes, sure.
0: Thanks, Robin. Um, I'll move then on. We've got Kelly, and then we've got Karen, so we'll go to Kelly. Thank, thank you very you. much, Chair.
2: Thank, thank you, Laura, Michelle, and Richard. Richard, you've said you've been in the sector for nine months. I you it feels like nine years at this point. <laughs> <laughs> it is one of the most innovative sectors that I have ever worked in. That's that old that I spent a long time before I joined the community and voluntary sector and then a long time after I joined it um, to compare the two. Um, right, so thank you all very much for the work that you're doing, but I'm going to have a few asks of you because Robin has covered some of my questions. You'll be glad to know. Um, Michelle, Bernardo says, I worked for a 167 charity um, and I recognized exactly what you're talking about. You know, um, quite a lot of us that worked in 167 charities know that you have to wash your own face in the the area that you're working in. Um, So you don't have this and money that all of a sudden comes from England, Scotland, or Wales into Northern Ireland. Um, While there are certainly savings made by having a central finance department or HR department, that doesn't mean to say that it pays and covers for services in different jurisdictions. So I want to ask you, and Richard, this will apply to you as well, do you have, uh, uh, Richard, yours is slightly different. I'll explain this in a minute. But do you have, Michelle, any outline of the impact of loss of services or loss of capacity to be able to deliver services during COVID that you have had because Northern Ireland didn't, your charity didn't have access to funding because of the 167 status and the fact that that hasn't been sorted out? So that's the first one. Richard, similarly with yourselves, um, because of the situation with COVID, it's not so much a loss of funding because we know there was funding available, but the amount, because of the waiting beds, especially connected with cancer, how much more pressure was put on your spells, And if you had to cost that all out, what was the cost? Or what would the cost or what should the cost have been? So how much money were you not available, you know, that could have delivered all that you had to deliver during COVID? Nora, then come to your side, I'm going to ask all the other folks, so please forgive. Nora, thank you very much. You know, good to see you again. Um, you know, support of the work of CO3. Can I just start off by saying it's similar to what I said to Nick for earlier? I can only imagine what it is like to be a leader in the community and voluntary sector at the moment, because not only do you have to juggle all that managers have to juggle, but you have that added built-in pressure of pressure that's on staff and volunteer so um my my utmost respect to you and your organization um nora i'm assuming that you're that co3 is on a joint government and community sector forum And I'm just wondering, um, I know you had spelled out there about the full cost recovery and the papers that are going forward to try and and move that issue forward. Has there been any discussion about how full cost recovery is going to be implemented across all departments? Is there going to be an agreement that would be relevant for all departments you know a, a one approach um, and as well as i wanted to ask you there's obviously going to be a new program for government coming up has there been any work from the joint government and community sector forum to bring forward full cost recovery in that program for government and the other thing i wanted to ask you nora is um is there any report that we can look at that confirms just how much of public services are being delivered by the community and voluntary sector. Now, when I worked in community transport, for instance, um, you could turn around and say, seventy-seven million at that stage, 77 million passenger trips were being delivered by TransLink. Massive amount of people, uh, my community transport people at that stage, were delivering 2 million um, passenger trips. So I could sort of see how much of the market that we were delivering upon. But when you start to think about how much of health and social care community services that are being delivered do we actually know how much public services because Northern Ireland I feel depends very heavily on our community and voluntary sector but does that actually reflect in the amount of money that's being spent and I doubt it is so I'll leave all those sorry for all the questions there folks but I thought I'll get them in all together so Michelle if you want to talk about your you know the Mm impact maybe Nora thank you
12: Okay Kelly, thank you. Um, So we're we're still working through the the whole financial impact of of the pandemic and I think it's going to take us um, at least this year to really understand because you know like Richard said we've tightened our belts, we've reviewed lots and lots of different areas, we are trying our hardest to protect the frontline services that that we deliver and as I said our income was reduced by approximately a million pounds um, and so we, we, you know, some of the initiatives did help in, in terms of the furrow scheme, um, but that was primarily used for retail staff. Obviously my children's services staff needed to be still out there, they, our children's house needed to be open, our foster cares kept delivering, um, uh, our leaving care services, um, all, all of those were, people were still out and about and, and, and doing the work they needed to. We, we did avail of four and a of £4,500 towards PPE from the VCSE COVID Recovery Fund. So that's helped a wee bit towards the, the, um, the PPE cost. We prioritise spend on essential services to ensure children and families don't experience a reduction in the service um, they receive. However, that has meant, um, Nora referred to the engine room services, that's meant our support services have been reduced to ensure that essential services can continue to deliver. So, like Richard talked about, we're trying to work to balance budget. It's the bit about we've shrunk things that we can, but you know, as you know yourself, somebody else still has to do that piece of work. You know, so you'll find people who are already running at 150 miles an hour now getting something else to do too. We've made a commitment to achieving reductions in our operating costs to protect essential services for this year, however, that will mean and um, the reinvestment of income is severely restricted and may lead to reductions in essential services as we move towards the end of this financial year. We're already having some conversations, some difficult conversations. Kelly, you know, when you're not full-cost recovered, so if I'm getting, if I've got public sector contract and it's 65 70%, I've got to find a 30% somewhere else, and if I can't find it, I can't deliver it and that's that's the hardest thing because especially when you work in an area with vulnerable children and the young people and, and their families um so it will the predicted shortfall in our voluntary funds will impact the organization um as we try to maintain our capability to work for children and families during a time of increasing need and complexity you know We're now at 18,000. If if we'd had this conversation two weeks ago, I would have been telling you that we worked with 14,000 children and young people in their families last year. That's the sort of increase, the demand that we're seeing. Um, We risk being unable to continue subsidising services um, contracted below the full cost recovery. That could lead, as I said, to the inability to fulfill some contracts, which will lead to a loss of key services for vulnerable children and young people. So that's what we're doing. We won't know the huge impact. I did refer to you earlier, we did have to close our our autism service. We've had a history of just being so underfunded. It was only 25% funded, and I just didn't have... And and, and I know the need, personally and professionally, know the need out there in relation to ASD, um, but I couldn't do that and there's some other services that we're really going to have to look at going forward.
2: Yeah. It's hard. It really is. Yeah.
11: So, uh, Kelly, thanks for your question. Um, Yes, it does feel like more than nine uh, nine years. yeah, I'll stick with the example maybe that I use in terms of, of uh, counselling, and like this, 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 this is a service that is offered you know, in hospital settings across the trusts, uh, as well as other community settings. There's a perception, certainly at the service user patient end, that it's actually part of the holistic care package alongside the diagnostic and, and treatment pathways for patients. Um, and then, therefore, when it reduces or disappears, all of a sudden then, you know, it's 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 more uh, apparent, you know, where it's funded from. Uh, so in terms of our specialist cancer care counselling, we, we would receive SLAs from four of the five health trusts for, I think, around 231 hours a week, of which 56 hours would be funded. That's about 25%. Um, so th- th- therefore, the impact for us um, you know was that we have you know we have to fund the balance from from voluntary income uh, and, and therefore we were in in in, in, a, in a crisis you know um march april of last year we did manage you know to because i was keen that that's a service that needed to be prioritized that it was down a uh, capacity for about 75 percent for about five to six months but we got it back up and running again but there, there, there is a real need i think for that as an example another other services you know that, that is perceived to be core um uh to you know to be mainstreamed you know and, and actually uh you know more value attributed to the service you know from statutory source. resource so yes uh, you know we we, we we can you know and again that 25 percent is not fully cost recovered you know that's a consistent theme um but yes you know we we, we can cost what, what's required like pre-COVID, um, and this is off the top of my head, but certainly in the Belfast Trust and I think the Southern Trust, there were 13 and 20 week waiting times respectively for cancer patients who, were, who were, wanted to receive counselling. Um, and our counseling is run with no cap because everyone's cancer journey is unique so the sessions were were uncapped and um, that did spike to almost uh, I think over 45 weeks you know as a result of the uh, you know the delay and, and waiting times therefore increased now we have had some emergency funding via the Department of Health in the early part of this year uh, to try and redress some of the waiting lists uh, but it is so important that we um you know have the ability to build back and recover you know to to pre-covid levels that were distressed anyway one other quick example as well is a driving service you know where we were driving about a thousand cancer patients every year to chemo and radio sessions again no aligned statutory funding source um obviously from a from a, an infection point of view there, there, there was risk around that but again that is a service that is now at risk as we as we look at what's affordable going forward. You know, um, uh, uh, sort of post pandemic. So hopefully that answers your question. Um, yeah, but you know the situation is 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 distressed.
2: And can I just ask you then on that um, on the transport where the transport side? You get me started, Richard. I'm a geek on transport. Take it then that you are covering the volunteers' costs, the 45p per mile, uh, yeah. and no funding for that
11: yeah so we fund that entirely from our from our voluntary income and yes further to michelle's point earlier volunteers are not free you know there is a huge amount of safeguarding risk assessment governance around that um yeah and our contribution to the volunteer is to cover mileage um but it's a hugely vital service in terms of you know the uh you know especially for people who come from uh, more socially deprived backgrounds and who maybe have five weeks of radio Bridgewater and, and need to get there every day uh, and do not have access to transport. So I think um, it's just another example of a service that is not funded, um, but that has been relied upon, you know, by by the by the you know by the health service. Yeah. Uh, in, in, in addition to the other provision that is that is made,
2: it's one of those hidden things. <laughs> and yeah. know, Shelby be you know foster services and the amount of transport. Mm-hmm. But I can geek all day on transport. But I want to hear from. No, thank you. Uh, yeah. Rit. Can I, over to you.
0: can I just remind members and uh, we're now under some time pressures so if we could be as direct as possible that would be great yeah um,
10: so, so in relation to the question about the joint forum kelly we were are not members of the um, joint forum but our chair um, and amory mcclure is chair of co3 and chair of the joint forum so there is that communication link between between the two and um, we, we did a response to the, um, I'm not sure if the Joint Forum did a response to the Joint Forum, that would be something I would need to clarify and come back to you on. Um, we did a response to the, the Programme for Government, um, and to be honest, um, and it feels like a lifetime ago now, but for, for, for off the top of my head, um, it was a very high level document. So there was, there, was a, there was quite a lot of detail missing from it. So it, it probably raised more questions than the opportunity to offer um, any real response to. And that was, those were the two key points that we had wasted the time, just the absence of detail and no ownership of outcomes as well. And the the outcomes, again, were were very loose and difficult to to pin down. Um, And then the third question um, around the amount of money that was being paid or being allocated to the sector through the um, to public procurement? It's a really good question. I don't have the answer to you um, or for you. I do know that um, I think there's something like £3 billion that's allocated annually um, through public procurement on spending, but what that actual breakdown is for our sector specifically, I don't know. Um, and I'm not even sure how we would go about trying to find that, but it's certainly something that I can do a bit more digging on or if you can
4: on our behalf. Right?
2: sorry thank you chair um no that, that's why i was asking because um, we do have an issue where if we are going to respect the work of the community and voluntary sector we need to know just how mm-hmm. much and we can't ignore that anymore but thank you very much
0: thank you kelly thank you um i have then one more member to come in africa bring karen in please
6: Thank you, Chair, and I I will be quick. I know uh, coming in last again, it is covered, mostly is covered, and we're under pressure for time. But thank you, Nora, Michelle, and Richard. And I'm not going to go over what I heard my earlier contributions, and that stands to yourselves. Once again, I want to thank you and commend everybody working within your organizations for the invaluable work. Lucky enough, I have, um, over being a community and voluntary worker, but also in this role, I have um, seen it firsthand and been involved with many of your organisations, um, Bernardo's, um, I was very lucky that over the time being in the Education Committee, I learnt a lot more in relation to the work, invaluable work that you do, um, and the, the work that Michelle, that you do here in my community in, in Derry. Um, and it, it has been a really difficult time. Um, and coming out of this, you know, it's, it is about. Um, picking up those children and, and families um, who uh, who have suffered greatly, particularly over this past year, and we should be doing everything we, we, we can to support. And I think going into this pandemic, um, uh, you know, we were butting for funds and all the rest. And once we got money, it became clear the grey areas that existed for some of your organisations across different departments and jurisdictions and things like that there. So hopefully there's a lot of learning there for us coming out of this. Um, Michelle, see just, uh, and I'll ask in a group because of time and come back, but for yourself, I know you touched there, because I was going to ask, was there education funding? I know you said there is now, but was there education COVID emergency funding? Or um, uh, did the Department of Economy uh, support the, the shops in terms of the charity shops? And I know that goes across also for, for Cancer Focus and many other charities. Um, uh, for yourself, Richard, um, welcome to the post. Uh, I have been very lucky, um, involved with the Pank Ladies Cancer Support Group here in Derry for many years, um, so uh, we'll be aware of how difficult it is for, t- for charities like yourself. And just listening to yourself and Kelly talk there, the hadn't of a cancer was always something that, that we worked on and championed and continue to do. Um, you know, when you're talking about transport, not funding, Um, uh, that was something that the group here provides and what it provided in the past we would have people from Derry travelling to Belfast having to stay, all those costs that your charities and ours um, come on behind and and support but again I think a question for yourself I wanted to ask was um, did health and is health providing uh, COVID emergency funding also for cancer charities Um, I know you've been lucky enough there in terms of DFC funding, but is health also contributing? Um, and uh, that's that's the only two questions I have. Michelle, Richard, if you could come on.
12: Okay, thank you, Karen, and thank you for your, your kind words and your support always. Um, very, very welcome. In relation to support from other government departments, the way it worked was that the departments gave us the assurance um, that we didn't have to put staff on furlough, so they covered the cost of the contracts that we already had we still have to find the bits of the contract that isn't paid for, and um, you know, so for example um, in education, in schools counselling, um, there's parts of the contracts are that where, where somebody's offset that's not covered um, and we have to pay them for somebody else coming in. What we did with schools counselling was fantastic, was we were able to get everybody online um, and then as schools started to open up again and feel more confident we've been able to get our counsellors back in really quickly and um, especially in our special schools, and um, it would be great if we could see you know if we could see quickly the pilot for schools counselling being rolled out and um, that would be even better but you no know, they they covered they, they gave us letters of assurance to cover the, the the contracted costs so we didn't have to furlough those, those frontline staff and um, health did the same Um and uh, so that was a department, mental level, and with communities, with the contracts we had for neighbourhood renewal and with supporting people. We were able to avail of some additional supporting people funds, um, capital costs that really help, um, for example, at our leave and care service, because um, obviously we needed a bit more space <laughs> um, with the whole, the, all the regulations around social distancing. Hey, um, economy, the economy, economy, we were able to be <laughs> some for, for the shops yet. Yeah. Unfortunately, we, we, we have had to close some of our shops. You may have seen that. Um, we've had to reduce the number of shops, and, and we'll review that over the next slide when we see um, how things develop. Mm. Thank you, Michelle.
1: Richard?
11: Uh, yeah, Karen, thanks for your very kind words and your support of the sector um, on behalf of ourselves and, and colleagues. Uh, we were fortunate that we did get some Department of Health emergency funding um, in the, for the, what was the last quarter of the previous financial year. Um, there was, I think, some money set aside specifically for, for cancer charities from, I think, money that maybe came from Westminster. Uh, it was a sm- very small amount of money, but we were able to access that in order to uh, re- uh, fund some of our creative therapies, our counselling work, and really the, you know, the, the practical support of patients between January and March to the end of the previous financial year. Uh, the department have also announced um the the, the, the the there has been i think nearly 11 million set aside into a cancer charity support fund which is very welcome um it went live on monday of this week and it's the intermediary i think it's been administered by the community foundation in northern ireland and um, so that you know will go some way as well to Assisting cancer organisations like ourselves to have the opportunity to apply mm. and to help to try and build back and recover some of the services. So, uh, we'd certainly be making an
6: application to that. That's that's great. Thank you, uh, Richard, and Michelle, and um, like uh, you know, I suppose thankfully, uh, you know, the DFC Minister acted very quickly along with my officials and got, got money out uh, but we, we very quickly went down to a complete lockdown so there is a lot of lessons there to be learned and I hope that we do learn them because as Nora has said the pressures was there beforehand but COVID has shone a spotlight on it um, and we do need to be working closer together across the government departments to make sure that because you are the ones that are providing the vital services and you can't stop um, like you know, when you look at cancer, we we we're, it's it's life or death, um, and it's not just the person; it's the family. And I know that's across many of the other organisations as well. So um, I, as I say, I just hope that we do take the learning from, from this. Um and we do put it on the plus and we, we do the co cool design properly going forward and be able to support one another. Just want to say it's sorry to hear that some of the shops have closed and there's redundancies and I really do hope um I I know you saw you've worked that hard, you'll come back bigger and better, but we need the support just to do that. So thank you so for coming along today. Thank you, Chair
0: thank you karen and uh, then can i then just finish by thanking yourself nora and michelle and richard for your time today um, if there has been any questions or anything further that we can do as a committee um, following this briefing today nora please do get in contact with us um, if there's further information that needs sought um, i know we're, we're under now a major time pressure to move on but i just want to say can you please pass on on behalf of this committee our great appreciation um to all within your sector and everything that you have been doing for many many years and just our, the, this committee's support in, in going forward uh, uh, and and how that how we shape that going forward for for your sector so thank you for joining us today thank you thank you very thank you. much thank you bye-bye go. all right can we bring all members then into the spotlight members i'm going to now do just a little bit of speed reading um, we're going to move on to tabled items, which is SL1 Private Rented Sector Registered Rents Increase Order 2021. Um, we've been asked by the Department to consider this SL1 today at our meeting, and it can be found, at, because of ensure time skills are met, it can be found in your table papers. The pro- proposed rule would allow for an increase of 1.5% to rents uh, of protected and statutory tenancies. For those properties that meet the housing fitness standard, this would represent an average weekly increase of pence. Oh. A protected tenancy is a tenancy controlled by the rent officer for Northern Ireland. In most cases, this means the present tenant is, in, is the person who is granted the tenancy. A statutory tenancy is a tenancy where the original tenant has died and a tenancy has transferred to the tenant's successor, for example, their spouse or or sibling. A protected or statutory tenancy offers the most security against eviction, and only under circumstances by application to the courts can a tenant be evicted. Can I ask members, have they any comments, are they content for the department to proceed to make the rule? Content? Okay, thank you. I'm going to move on to agenda item 9, which is correspondence. You'll find the memo at page 97. Can I just draw your attention to one item? And that's at page 99, which is a letter from Dolores Kelly, MLA, in relation to funding for women's aid refuges. This came up at the all-party group that I chair, the APG on um, Women, Peace and Security 1325. Um, so I'd asked her to send it through to ourselves because this is something that we need to look at at that at the greater... Um, sort of housing strategy going forward. Are members content that we write to the Minister uh, in support of the call for more funding? Agreed. Thank Mm. you. I also wanted, uh, sorry, another one, uh, page 201, if we can draw your attention there, and it's the correspondence regarding the forecast outcome data provided by the Department of Finance. Can I ask members, uh, if they wish, to write to the Department to query the rationale for any resource or capital end of year surges as advised by the finance committee or are they content with what officials covered earlier um, officials um i think i think we need to write to the department on that i don't think we got a full explanation uh, not that okay. it was the officials fault because they did, maybe didn't have all of that information members agreed with that
2: agreed
0: okay i'm going to ask if any other members anything on correspondence they wish to bring up no nope. No. Okay, then we'll move on to Agenda Item 10, um, that is our Forward Work Programme. Uh, Next week's meeting we will be briefed by the Council for the Homeless, Co-ownership and the National Insulation Association of Ireland, and also by the Department on Neighbourhood Renewal. Members, were also made aware yesterday that the Minister is available to brief on welfare reform mitigations at next, next week's meeting. To enable this to happen, the meeting will have to commence at 9am, um, as the Minister has an existing diary commitment at 930 um, I Yeah, 30 minutes I don't think is nowhere near long enough to discuss anything to do with welfare reform mitigations, but we are where we are. Um, um, so can I ask Members, are they content for the Minister to brief? and the meeting to start at 9am next week? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. 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 I know it's not long enough. It's nowhere near long enough. Um, but um, it, that is, that is what we've people. been offered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think there's just, we need to discuss this at some stage, and we'll discuss it next week, about just um, the length of time we're getting briefings for. And I know there's executive on a Thursday and things like that. Um, But I think that's something we need to go back to our own parties about, um, that maybe looking at at, at, at executive meetings having to be shuffled about a bit to allow the committees on a Thursday morning to get full access to their ministers, because I know that has been a a major issue for us. Um, Are members content with that, and we'll discuss that next week, maybe after the briefing, and we'll move on to agenda item 11. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Agenda item eleven is AOB. Any other business at this stage members want to bring up that we haven't already covered? No, can we move on? Oh sorry, Kelly, go ahead.
2: Yeah, I was just gonna say um, Paul, I take your advice on this one. Um obviously we went through the consideration stage of the licensing and regulation of clubs the other day. There has been questions that were raised during the debate and have since actually been raised on clarification points. Um, I'm just wondering, can we ask for those still through the committee or should we take those directly through the department as individual MLAs?
0: Um, hold on, two texts, we'll um, just go to Janice. I had a, an email just this morning from Claire McKinney in the Bill office that any further
4: questions direct to her in the first instance.
0: Okay, so Janice has okay. said any further questions direct to Claire McCanny in the Bill's office in the first instance. Does is that, is that okay. clear that up for you, Kelly? I mean, it, it, yeah. No. yeah okay uh, because it's now left the committee um it's no longer yeah. with the committee uh it's Sorry. now in the bill's office all right members can we move on then to agenda item 12. um that is date time and location of our next meeting our next meeting will take place next thursday the 17th of june here in room 29 with the starting time of 9am you'll all be very glad about that um so thank you members we'll see you next week thank you thank you